This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be shattered by my co-host and your friend, John Syracusa. It's episode number 81. Today is Friday, August 17th, 2012. We have three lovely sponsors. I'll tell you more about them as the show goes on, but I'd like to tell you who they are right now. It's Helpspot.com, Hover.com, and Squarespace.com. We also would like to mention and thank our friends over at audiobooksapp.com. Listen to thousands of classic audiobooks free on your iPhone or iPad, audiobooksapp.com, or just search for audiobooks in the App Store. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, Dan. How are things going there in the great, great Northeast? It's cooling off. It's nice. What's a cooling off at this time of year? What does that mean? I know, 80, low humidity. That's great, man. 80. Woo! Yeah, it's nice. No, but low humidity, that's the key. That is the key. We were under 100 here in Austin, Texas uh, this week a couple times, so I'm thrilled. Feels like winter. There you go. (laughs) It's getting cold. Get out the scarf. That's right. Start wearing ties, you know, sport coats and ties again. So this week, our plans, or my plans, were to continue... Talking about my rapidly aging mountain lion review. How, how long after how long after you publish it do you feel that it, it's no longer of value? Because I, I know people that will read this thing, revisit it years later. I think it retains its value as a historical document or whatever, but people lose interest in it, and they're not. You, you probably need some sort of wind at your back to read your way through, you know, twenty five thousand words of. Uh, text and that wind at your back is rapidly fading. People will always read and go back to it. I go back to it myself to look stuff up. You know, sure. it's a, It becomes a reference at some point. But yeah, but it's not news. A, re- a referential document. Yeah. Uh, but this week, Twitter had to go and make news and <laughs> even when they made news, I was like, you know what? I'm still going to talk about Mount Lion. I don't, you know, do I need to talk about it? <laughs> but it's just, it's impossible. It's impossible to ignore. So my current plan is we're going to talk about the Twitter stuff Maybe I'll try to do it quickly. I don't know. And then we'll see how much time is left and maybe we'll jump back into Mountain Lion. Uh, I, I, I really did not plan to talk about it, but it's just been on my mind so much that I would feel like I'm ignoring the topic purposely and it's just it would be nagging at me. So let's, we're going to talk about that. And, and I'm still basically foregoing follow-up because I have all this follow-up building up, a lot of follow-up about Mountain Lion, follow-up about, up about topics before the Mountain Lion review, but I'm just, I'm just queuing it. Uh, so I mean, we don't have time for that this week anyway. So we're going to do Twitter and then we're, we'll dive back into Mountain Lion. And this, of course, continues to push off my various tales of woe about the uh, ebook production process and mm. all that. So we're well, getting I, backlogged here. Yeah, that's all right. I mean, that's normal for the show. I will put all of these things into the show notes in case there's a few people who haven't read this uh, this blank blog post from Twitter and all the other things. So if you want to follow along, People have told me that they want me to mention this link at the at the top of the show, John. So I'll do that now. It's 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 81. That's the episode number, and, and that's where you'll see all of the links. So as John and I discuss various news items and, and documents and things, you'll find all of those links right there. So you can follow along at home, or you can subscribe in an RSS reader, and they'll show up in the show notes there. I've already got most of the links in there, but well, you, we can add. Yeah. No, you do an excellent job of of preparing for the show. Thank you for that. All right. So, uh, 
before we talk about the Twitter announcements, let's frame this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, just remember, we've talked about this in past shows, but let's let's remember why all of this is happening. Like, what? Why is there anything, any angst involving Twitter? Uh, so here's the quick review. So Twitter made a network service that people love. They made it free, and they got tons of users. Uh, that's it. something's happened many times before. I was trying to look up how many uses it has, and I think Twitter is kind of cagey about that, but it looks like it's at least hundreds of millions, like 300 million is a good estimate. If you go to Twitter's numbers page, they just tell you how many new accounts they're making a day, but don't come out and how many, say how many accounts they have. But anyway, hundreds of millions of accounts, I think we're safe to say. Uh, and it costs a lot of money to run a service like that. It just, you know, no matter how simple it is, no matter what it does. And we all know the, the problems Twitter had in the past years of trying to keep their service up, keep it stable. Big events would swamp it and we'd see the fail whale uh, and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's difficult to run it reliably, but just in terms of sheer numbers, if you think it costs a lot of money to uh, host like podcasts and send out uh, audio files, imagine if you had 300 million users, you know, doing, I don't know what the numbers are, but like millions and millions of tweets a day. It just costs money. I mean, that, that could potentially be several hundred dollars a month. Yeah, a lot of money. And Twitter was mostly on the oldstyle.com model, which was get users, get as many as fast as you possibly can and figure out how to make money later. Like it's more important to to do the hockey stick graph on getting new users and just like if you spend time fretting over, oh, but but it costs so much money to buy all these servers and we're hiring all these employees and we have a, how, how are we going to make money? Don't worry about it. Just get users as fast as you possibly can. That was the dot-com model, although in the dot-com days, they called them eyeballs, not users, because the rest of the body was wasted. But now, in the Web 2.0 world, uh, entrepreneurs use all of the consumer, not just the eyeballs. Uh, so their, their figure out how to make money later was, was the strategy. Well, now it's later. <laughs> and now Twitter needs to find a way to make money. And they need to make not just like a little bit of money, because they're already making money, like they charge for those promoted tweets or I don't know what the hell they're charging various people for, but they need to make enough money to turn a profit. So they have to cover their costs and their overhead of their headcount and everything like that. And they need to not just turn a little profit, they need to turn enough profit to pay back all the investors who put all this money in to feel like, oh, you know, I put all this money into this thing. I want to see a big bang result. I don't want to see, oh, we're making, you know, a nice little profit every year. Like it has to be a big payback because people have put big money into Twitter. And so far in the years leading up to this, everything Twitter has done to make money has been like, yeah, I mean, people will give us money for things. There's some value here, uh, but it's not, I don't think they have have yet arrived at the thing like, oh, now finally we have a business model. Now finally we can do it and, you know, a year end report on uh, income and earnings and everything and say, look at this, you know, we made like, like Apple does. We Here's our humongous revenue. Here's our fat margins. Here's our gigantic profit. It scales with the number of, of uh, customers we have. So we get more customers and our margins don't disappear when that happens. And we keep making lots of money. Twitter hasn't found that yet. Uh, and the way it appears that Twitter has decided that they're going to make money is not to charge users, but to sell its users to other people. And that's what most successful social networks do. Uh, you know, because people don't want to pay for social networks. Uh, and we've talked about this in previous shows. In general, other people are willing to pay more money for access to the users of a social network than those users themselves are willing to pay to use that network. And the, the, you know, the usual phrasing we've done in past shows is advertisers are outbidding users. So this is the general model that Twitter is following. We have tons of users. We're not going to ask them to pay money because we think they won't. 
or if we did, most of them would, would decline and we'd be left with a very small user base. And that's counter to what we're trying to do. So we're going to sell access to these users to other people. Uh, but Twitter has a problem, and they've had a problem for a while. It's that its growth was partially fueled by this big ecosystem of third-party client applications for reading Twitter on all sorts of platforms, on mobile, on desktop, everywhere. And, and that means that Twitter doesn't completely control how people read Twitter. I'm, I'm a great example. I don't go to the Twitter website ever. All I ever use to read Twitter is Twitterific on both the Mac and the iPhone. And Twitter doesn't control Twitterific. And so they have very little... How can they sell me to anyone if they don't control how I access Twitter? Uh, that, that's their problem. And so they're, you know, say they wanted to show me ads or do that card interface or, or you know, the, the, Twitter needs some way to make its users see what it wants them to see. And Twitter's solution to this is that it must take control of the user experience. It must take the user experience back from all the third-party uh, clients that are out there so it can control it. Because once it has control over the user experience, then it can say, now, finally, we can start selling access to you, the consumer, to whoever we want, advertisers, game makers, you know, third-party developers, anyone who wants access to you, we now have a conduit to you, and we can uh, control what goes down that conduit. So they need to take control of their platform. And, they, and they've talked about this under the guise of making a consistent user experience, consistent as code for, uh, you know, consistent just means a single user experience, but it's a single user experience that Twitter <laughs> controls. Yeah, consistent in that it's controlled exclusively by them. Yeah, like, consistent just means, like, okay, everybody has to use, uh, you know, Helvetica. Like, that would be a consistent experience, uh, you know, because that's, that's what they decided. It's all the same. That you, No matter where you go, Twitter will be in Helvetica. This is a silly example, obviously. Uh, but just doing that, making some silly change like that, means that you have the power to dictate to everybody who is doing anything through your, you know, API or whatever that they have to show Helvetica. So just putting that mechanism in place whereby you make a decision and everyone else complies, that's the control. It's not so much the decision of, how things have to look or how they have to present it or whatever. It's setting up the channel of control so that any change you make like that, oh, today we've decided all tweets must be in all capital letters. Once you've set up the, the pathways for that control, that's the, that's the trick. That's what they're doing here, not so much the individual changes. So keep that in mind as we go through uh, the actual changes here. So this was a post to dev.twitter.com where these kind of announcements usually come. And it's about version 1.1 of the Twitter API. So innocuous sounding, you know, 1.0. And it's going to be version 1.1 of the Twitter API. Uh, and it's got three main changes here that we're going to talk about. Uh, two kind of boring ones and then the exciting one. Uh, so the first one is required authentication on every API endpoint. Uh, they just want everyone who uses their API to authenticate. So they have a bunch of people who are just hitting the Twitter API, the, the publicly accessible stuff. And just pulling tons and tons of data. And Twitter has no idea who these people are. Because all they have is an IP address. And some server keeps hitting them and pulling down all this data. And they say we should not. They don't want to have parts of the Twitter data stream that anybody can just grab. A part of the Twitter API, rather. I mean, I guess it's just going to force these people to become web scrapers. And pull down the web pages and try to scrape them. And, you know, it's an ongoing war. But this, this makes sense. If you have a really popular API, it's probably not a good idea to have endpoints that are public, uh, especially if there is potentially valuable information there and people are building bots that just constantly scrape these things. So I don't think this is a, a requirement that upsets anybody. I think everyone would be perfectly on board with, yeah, you know, if you're going to use a Twitter API, you sign up with Twitter, 
they tell you you're allowed to use it, and then they can identify who you are. And if you accidentally make something that hammers their servers, they can talk to you about it. So that's fine. So in the version 1.1 of the API, every single request to the API has to be authenticated. Uh, the second item is a new per endpoint rate limiting technology. Uh, the current limit is like they, they put a cap on, what is it, uh, 350 API calls per hour. And that is a blanket requirement, uh, regardless of which type of API call you make. And they want to make it more flexible because maybe there's, you know, this particular API call is really expensive, but this one is cheap. So there may be applications that say, can't I make, you know, 100 times that many calls if I call this really simple API that isn't costly to you, Twitter, and doesn't, you know, take a lot of resources. So they're going to put different limits on different endpoints so they can say, okay, this one, this is a very expensive operation. You only have a certain number of these per hour, but this is a very cheap operation and you can have much more. So this makes sense from an API perspective. It's kind of like a, I think Marco talked about this in a recent Build and Analyze about the Instapaper API and how he had different limits on different type of requests already. I forget what the, the details were. One of them was like a limit on, uh, do you remember the details of this? One I'm was trying to remember it. Yeah, I think po- it was, one was a posting limit, right? How many things you could add Instapaper. Right. And the other one was like a read, reading limit. And he was talking about somebody, I guess, who was thinking that the number of stories that they could add for their own was was it 160 a day or something? It was something like that, or maybe it was 120, 130, I think. And and whatever it was, that, I mean, the idea that somebody is adding that many a day, I don't know who could possibly read that many. And that was that was what I said to Marco. I'm like, who who's reading that many in a single yeah. day? And I guess at that point, that a limit comes in. I think that was the what we were yeah. talking about. But but he's got a different limit for oh, just API calls to pull down right. your list of things you need to read later. Right? Sure. So this this is a completely sensible thing for an API. Having one limit for the entire API usually doesn't make sense because some calls are more expensive than others. Uh, again, no no controversy over this change. Uh, they should have done the you know the I can't say the word on the show, but the SHIT sandwich strategy. Uh, where you have good news, bad news, good news, you know that one? <laughs> yeah. So they could have put like the the required authentication on every API endpoint, then the bad thing, and then at the end, uh, per endpoint rate limiting technology. But I think it wouldn't have mattered because everyone's just going to ignore the innocuous things. Like, have you heard anybody talk about required authentication and rate limiting? No. it's not. That's not what this post is about, really. And so the final one. Changes to our developer rules of the road, especially around applications that are traditional Twitter clients. Here's where we get to the good slash bad stuff or the meat of this thing. And this is broken down into subparts. First part is display guidelines. And they used to have display guidelines that said, Here, if you're showing a tweet, this is what it should look like. And it had all sorts of rules about how to display things and uh, you know what to do and what not to do. The change in the 1.1 API is the display guidelines become display requirements. This is, <laughs> they're trying to be so nice and politic and, you know, uh, California knife in the back style. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's M- the California MBA style is, is I think the official term for this. Yeah, I still don't like that phrase because I think it means people in California. But yeah, it's business speak, and so <laughs> this like they're trying to be so politic, but that's this one slipped out. Design guidelines become design requirements. Uh, so you know, remember how we had those guidelines? Well, now they're not so guideliney. They're more like, oh, you do this, uh, and this is a way of them controlling. Their, the appearance of things. If they had a requirement that said all tweets must show in Helvetica, this is where it would appear in the, desi- in the display requirements document. So I looked at this document trying to figure out what this means. Like, 
does I was looking mostly with Entourage, does my existing Twitter application, Twitterific, does it comply with these guidelines or will it have to change? Because now these aren't just guidelines, now these are requirements. And what it basically means is starting as soon as this API is released, if you have a Twitter client that does not comply with the display requirements, they could pull your uh, API access and that would be very bad. And so basically, if you look at these requirements, look at your favorite Twitter client in a couple of weeks, if your Twitter client doesn't comply with these requirements, maybe it will stop working. So uh, developers are going to have to comply. Uh, and at first, I was very upset because I looked at the requirements. And I'm like, oh, this is awful. Do you have this page up here? Yes. Uh, the, the top. And it sh- shows this thing. And I read the parts. I'm like, no, but that's, that's too much stuff. But it's got the, has to be, the, the name has to be on a new line after the full name. And there has to be a follow button with a Twitter logo. And I don't have that in Twitterific. I, I have this nice, more minimal interface. Uh, but I was confused. So I tweeted that and quickly deleted the tweet because I was incorrect. These are the guidelines for showing an individual tweet. And as far as I'm aware, I don't use anything that shows an individual tweet. Everything I use shows a timeline. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not so concerned about these individual tweet requirements, but they're pretty pretty strict. Like they don't specify the font name, but they do almost as much. They specify like what lines things have to go on, where things must appear, uh, formats of some things. It's almost as if Twitter, the Twitter folks are saying, do it exactly the way we do it. And the hope behind if you read between the lines it almost seems like they're saying dad just don't bother doing it just let do do just use our stuff and that isn't that the gist of it well it's like it's removing any differentiation why would you make a twitter client because why wouldn't why wouldn't everyone just use the regular twitter client like differentiation is the reason oh i don't like the regular twitter client i like this one better taking something differently and so they're removing a visual differentiation as much as they possibly can here say, okay, well, if you were using another client because you liked how it displayed tweets better, well, that reason's going away because we're going to make all of them look the same. And so there are other areas of differentiation, but this is, you know, it, it will make them more look, look more the same. But uh, again, I think it's mostly about setting up the channels of control because if they, can, if they can pull this off and set up this channel of control over how their things are displayed, then they can leverage that to do whatever they want down the road. Uh, the, the part, but on the individual tweet, the, the part that... Uh, I focused on and a couple other people have looked at as well is when they're talking about the tweet actions that appear. They say reply, retweet, and favorite action icons must always be visible. And, you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the next point in the section says no other social or third-party actions may be attached to a tweet. And I think that's the complete text of that section. Let me Let me look up at it again. Yeah, that's it. Uh, 3B. No other social or third-party actions may be attached to a tweet. And that's ambiguous. Because what the hell does attached mean? Uh, like the, the big question is, if you wanted to display an individual tweet in your application, right? And there are all sorts of guidelines, like you can't modify the tweet text. You can't, you know, you have to just show it the way they want to show it. It's clear that you can't put another little button down there that says like, you know, send to Facebook. Like there can't be a little Facebook logo or a like button or all sorts of other things. It's clear that you can't have because that would that would clearly be attached to a tweet. But the question uh, that a lot of people have is, all right, what about if I right click on the URL in a tweet? Like you know, the tweet someone says, hey, check out this website, and they put the URL. What if I right click on that tweet and I want to show a send to Instapaper option? And that's one of the actions that I do all the time in my Twitter clients. Is I you know right click on a tweet and send Instapaper because I'm going to read it later and I have time to read it now. Does that count as a third-party action attached to a tweet? It's not a new icon. It's not a little thing down by the reply, retweet, and favorite 
actions in the lower right corner or anything like that. But it does doesn't seem like it's attached to a tweet. So these guidelines are not guidelines. These these rules requirements are not specific enough to know whether that type of thing is going away. The spirit of it seems to be that that would have to go away, right? That it's not a question of how it mechanically appears. Oh, it's in a context menu when you right click instead of being a little icon. It's more about the idea that Twitter doesn't want any other services to piggyback on its success. Like tons of people see tweets, tons of people use Twitter clients. It would if you have a social networking service or related thing, we don't want you piggybacking on our success by throwing your icon in there instead of, hey, if we can get our icon in uh, next to every tweet in a really popular Twitter client, then uh, and and tons of people use Twitter, then we can boost our business by putting ourselves in front of everybody. Is that how they feel about send instant paper on a link that that, Mar- that it'll be like boosting Marco's business at the expense <laughs> of Twitter or something? I don't I don't know. It's it's unclear. But anyway, this is still just for an individual tweet. So if you go down to the requirements for timelines, they're different than the ones for individual tweets. And luckily, Twitterific already complies with pretty much all of these. And it's probably not a coincidence. I'm sure they comply with them because when they were just called guidelines, the guys at Icon Factory said, okay, let's comply with these guidelines to, you know, get on the good side of the Twitter guys. And they're not particularly onerous. I mean, they're they're less crazy than the individual tweet ones. So the, they're the guidelines for timelines have less stuff around them and you can you don't have to show the logo on every single tweet and stuff like that. Some minor changes might be needed in terms of where things are laid out. Uh, but the interesting part of the timeline requirements is when you go down to the tweet action setting number uh, tweet action section section three, it has the same three A item replies, retweet and favorite tweet icons must always be visible, blah blah blah. There is no three B about third-party actions. So what does that mean? Does that mean in a timeline you're allowed to have social or third-party actions attached to a tweet? Not really clear. Do yeah, they just omit, very unclear. Do they just omit 3B? Like, why would it be okay on a timeline app, but not... A, it could be that... The, like, Here's the thing about these requirements. With all this guesswork and Kremlinology, of like, what do they mean by that or whatever, it, it seems to me that if they had this discussion and said, okay, well, we're going to make this requirement for individual tweets, but we know that lots of third-party clients uh, that show timelines let you do all sorts of things with like URLs and send them to different services and, you know, the read later services and stuff like that. Uh, so why don't we acknowledge that and uh, allow people to do that type of thing in the timeline, but not in the individual tweet. If they had that discussion, if that was the, uh, the result of that discussion, they should write that in the requirements. Like, I know it's weird to say to have to put like a, a positive instead of a negative, like instead of saying, here's what you are required to do, put some clarification that says, now I know anyone reading this who is like an API developer who has a third party client is going to wonder, hey, but what about all my read later things? Can I do those? Write something about it. Say explicitly if you can or can't. Just omitting it, you can say, well, isn't that clear? We don't, we didn't put that requirement there. Therefore, you're allowed to do it. But there's uncertainty about it because we all get the feeling that Twitter doesn't want other services uh, benefiting from its popularity and simply the lack of a prohibition on attaching third-party actions is not comforting enough to let people know. <laughs> like it's, it's, the, the uncertainty is not good. I think I said to someone yesterday, you know, uncertainty can be, actually be worse than concrete bad news. I mean, just look at the stock market. People don't like uncertainty. I, th- I think most people would pick the devil they know over the devil they don't know. 
Yeah, because you can plan for like if concrete bad news means you can decide, make a decision and make a plan and execute. But uncertainty means you're not sure what to do. You don't know what plan to make. Do you assume the worst? Do you assume the best? Do you stop work on your Twitter? You freeze up. You freeze up. Yeah. And that's, I think, absolutely what they want people to do. Uh, I don't know. It's it's so difficult to tell. I think Twitter will not. Here's my take on this. John, I don't think Twitter will be happy until they have either severely limited and controlled what everybody else is doing. Or they are just, they make the only client out there. What they love, they love a client that allows you to, that, look, at, look at what Apple is doing as far as in Mountain Lion and the way that you tweet and share from within Mountain Lion, same thing for iOS. That's what Twitter wants. You're, you're adding content to Twitter. They do not want anything else but that. They don't want you to pull content from Twitter. They don't want you to read content from Twitter. They certainly don't want you to scrape content from Twitter. They don't really, and if you're going to embed it or get any content, they really want you to do it with their stuff, their way, looking the way they want. They absolutely want this, and it, I've been, we've been, you and I have been talked about this. I've talked about it with Marco. It is simply a matter of time before, if you're building a Twitter app right now, it's time to think about building another app that has nothing to do with Twitter. The companies like Instagram, where you can like tweet about something you did. Oh, they love that. Companies like the, that are doing it the way, look at how Apple has done it. That's the way you need to be doing it. Anything else is just going to get more and more difficult. And I, when I read this, John, I'm actually surprised that they laid it out so plainly and that they're moving this fast. They really don't want other people doing anything. They really don't. They, what, what, they should just summarize this whole thing that says, please stop building anything else except things that tweet to, to, to Twitter, that's it. Stop. Just stop. They're trying to man out first. Well, we're going to be making some changes. Then they say, well, here, here are those changes. And then they say, well, these changes are a little bit more strict. How long do you think before they're, they just completely crack down and say, just we're, we're starting to shut down the other clients? Well, part of it is, uh, I mean, it may, it may seem harsh, but like as they pointed out the thing, they said they signaled this direction was like 18 months ago or something. Uh, so people have had a long time to adjust to the idea. It's kind of like doing the strategic leak where you set up expectations. <laughs> and you slow, but the other part of it is they have to be unsure a little bit of how this is going to go. They know there's going to be blowback, but uh, their risk is like, is the blowback going to be just a bunch of nerds who are angry for a couple of days and it goes away? Or is it worse than that? Everyone just leaves like and so I think that part of the caution is not just like for our benefit, but for their benefit, because they can't be sure of the consequences. They can't they can't be totally sure. And so this kind of appro- graduated approach is a risk management for them as well. And, and actually, speaking of mountain lion, we'll throw in some mountain lion content here. I, when we were all uh, talking to Apple before the mountain lion reviews came out, Gruber mentioned that one of the questions he was going to ask them was, why is it in the mountain lion Twitter you know, interface or whatever, when you click on, uh, I think it was when you click on a URL of a tweet or something like that, it takes you to the Twitter website. It doesn't launch Twitter's official Mac client and show the tweet in that context or some, something similar. Basically, like, why, why am I being taken to Twitter.com, the website, when I have the official Twitter client installed and it's a Mac application and this is OS level integration? It seems like, you know, 
but they've always been like, I get taken to the Apple Mail application when I want to send an email. Why, why when I look at a tweet, doesn't it send, does it send me to the website? And if you look at these guidelines, it's clear the guidelines explicitly say if you have a URL to a tweet or a URL to the username, when you click on it, it goes to twitter.com. You know. I think Apple is the model for Twitter integration right now. That yeah, is because they, they, they got want. these guidelines. They got these guidelines early, clearly. Yeah. yeah. And they complied with them. And so every, every question you have about why does it work that way in Mountain Lion, the, the answer Gruber got from them was Twitter requested that we, that we do this. Right. So it makes perfect they, sense. Know, so they were, they were the first people to be under this regime. And uh, I don't think it's uh, bad for their integration, but it's clear where all these things came from. All right. So the, the next section of the uh, changes to developer rules of the road is uh, requiring pre-installed client applications to be certified by Twitter. This actually makes some sense and is actually pretty, a pretty good deal. So the, what they mean is, if you buy a device, like you buy a phone or something, and it comes pre-installed with a Twitter client, which Twitter itself, of course, loves, you know, hey, anything you buy comes, it's like Netflix, anything you buy comes with Netflix installed on it, it's good for Netflix. Well, if you're making one of those pre-installed Twitter clients, those have to be certified ahead of time by Twitter. And because if they weren't, like say someone makes a new phone and does not get the client pre-certified by Twitter and it violates all of these rules for, for Twitter stuff. It doesn't display things the right way. It uh, doesn't hit the right APIs. Doesn't do it. Doesn't do any of the things that they want it to do. It doesn't, doesn't conform to the requirements. And someone sells tons of those phones. Now Twitter is faced with a terrible choice. Uh, remove API access for that client thus pissing off you know, thousands of potentially millions of phone users are going, I bought your stupid phone and it had Twitter built into it, but then the Twitter thing stopped working and I don't know why. Like, that would be bad. Like, right. How would that even come down? Because it, all those customers coming back in, I bought this HTC phone and I've been using Twitter on it for a week and all of a sudden Twitter stopped working. Can you imagine if you sold 100,000 of those and all 100,000 users had, had quote-unquote their Twitter stop working? My Twitter stopped working. They'd all come back into the store. They'd be calling customer support. Maybe there'd be a class action lawsuit. And the phone vendor probably in turn would sue Twitter. And so, you know, so Twitter is setting up ahead of time an agreement. Say, look, you've got to pre-certify because we don't want to be in the position of flipping the off switch on the built-in Twitter client on all these phones. And nerds are going to be like, well, won't they just download another client and use that or whatever? That's not, you know, it's not what people do. If their phone comes with Twitter, that they think that's just an immutable law of the universe, and that's how you access Twitter, kind of like the IE icon was how you get to the internet. And Twitter does not want to be in a position of flipping those guys, the off switch on those guys' API access. So this plan makes sense. Uh, it does mean that they want, once again, this is setting up a channel of control. Uh, it makes sense for all parties involved, but it also means that Twitter is now the gatekeeper for uh, Twitter clients that come pre installed on phones. And Twitter loves that. It's control. We can say no to your application if it doesn't conform to our rules. And once we've set up that channel of control, now we have complete control over every pre-installed Twitter client and every phone. So, you know, it's good for Twitter. And I think the phone people will like it too because there'll be less uncertainty as far as they're concerned. But of course, now the phone makers are at the mercy of Twitter. Like imagine if everybody did that. If, 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 uh, if you wanted to include an email application, you'd have to get a prior approval from Google if you're going to make an IMAP client that's going to connect to Gmail. Well, do you conform to our requirements? It becomes kind of onerous. But... Twitter is grabbing this control when it can get it. All right, so here is probably the killer one. Requiring developers to work with us directly if you need a large amount of user tokens. The, the phrasing with user tokens confused a lot of people, including me, because I'm not familiar enough with how Twitter n names the things. I'm assuming they mean like the OAuth tokens that 
you get when you when you as a user say, okay, I allow this application to access my stream. You know, but yeah, there's a, there's a limit to how many requests it can make and what it can do. Well, you get a token that says, okay, you said the Twitterific on the Mac can access your account and send tweets or whatever. So that's a user token, right? And they're doled out by Twitter itself using the OAuth mechanism. Right. But what it boils down to is how many users of your application can you have? And I think it might, I'm not sure, someone, I tried to look up what user tokens mean since yesterday and didn't find the good technical explanation. But what I'm wondering is, do I count as one user token or two? Because I use Twitterific on the Mac and on iOS. Is that one user token? I, I'm, it's the best case scenario is just one. And it really is tied to the user and it's not tied to per user per application. But I could be wrong about that. Uh, so the phrasing on this one, like the, this is all written in weird business speak and strange euphemisms and stuff. But I'm going to read some of this because this is, this is uh, priceless. One of the key things we've learned over the past few years is that when developers begin to demand an increasingly high volume of API calls, we can guide them towards areas of value for users and their businesses. What in the holy hell does that mean? <laughs> like, right, so first, first part of the phrasing. When developers begin to demand an increasingly high volume of API calls, like demand is like the developers are demanding, right? It's, it's applying, they are the actors in this and they are, they are being demanding. Uh, and, and it's not the develop, you know, so if you sell a popular application, tons of users buy it or download it and start to use it. And those users start to make API requests. In Twitter's view, that is the developer of that application demanding of Twitter a higher volume of API calls. I can see how they can see it from that perspective, but it puts the, this phrasing paints the developer as the, the bad guy in this scenario. You are a demanding developer. You are demanding a lot of us. And that's true. They are demanding, you know, they, they're, those, those resources to serverless requests cost money. Uh, so the beginning of this is one of the key things we, meaning Twitter, have learned over the past few years. So it's basically based on our experience of having third-party developers' applications hammer our API, right? And so that's the, the whatever the, uh, the phrase, the, the introductory clause of the sentence. One of the few things that we learned when developers start increasing high-volume API calls. And there's a comma. And the thing that they've learned is we can guide them toward areas of value for users and their businesses. So Twitter is going to take these, these developers who've created an application that has become popular that users are using to hit the service a lot. And Twitter is going to guide them toward areas of value for users and their businesses. I don't know if that's the developer's businesses or the user's businesses. Twitter... It seems like the developers, if they're selling their application, have found an area of value for their business and their users because clearly the users value it because they're using the application a lot. And if, the, if they're selling their client application, th their business is doing good because they're selling lots of copies. But Twitter would like to guide them. It doesn't even say different areas of value. It's, uh, I don't even know what this euphemism means. It's like, we have learned that when we get hammered by API calls, we should do something about it. And what we should do is make the developers do something different. I don't, I don't, like, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. And they say, to that end, to what end? What, you haven't said anything clear at all. To that end, and similar to some other companies, and I'm not sure who they're referring to here. It could be Apple with the App Store. It could be you know, Facebook with API access. I don't know. We will require you to work with us directly if you believe your application will need more than one million individual user tokens. Uh, so this whole introductory paragraph full of nonsense that says nothing and is kind of passive-aggressive toward developer, boils down to 
you're going to have a more than a million users. You're going to use a Twitter API. You must work with us directly. What does that mean? Who knows? It's just like, we're going to work together. We're going to talk. What it basically means is more than 1 million users, we have to talk. Let's talk. What are we going to say when we talk? Are we going to say a goodbye? We don't like you anymore. That's possible. Are we going to say it's fine? Just keep going with your million users. We like you. Thumbs up. That's possible too. Again, uncertainty. Someone in the chat room is trying to correct me. I'm reading from the document. <laughs> Read it yourself. More <laughs> than 1 million individual user tokens. You must work with us directly. Yeah. Blanket statement. Uh, and the way it's phrased with like, I don't know. Come, come work. Come work with us. We should. We should talk. Right. That's that is massive uncertainty because work with us directly means nothing to anybody. Uh, clearly, Twitter is in the driver's seat here uh, because they can make any arbitrary decision, and you have no idea what it's going to do. Now, I don't know how many uh, clients have more than one million applications, uh, more than one million users. Is that a, a rarefied club? Is it just like I think it's uh, got to be pretty rare. Yeah. I, but like that's their that's their bound on like forget it. If you got more than one million users and they're using our API, we need to talk. And that talk is completely uncertain. The outcome of that talk could be good, could be bad, who knows. The, the feeling is that it's gonna be bad because why do you need to talk to me at all? It's like getting called down to the principal's office. I've noticed that you have one of the one million users. Uh, little Jimmy, please come down to the principal's office. We need to talk about your your API users. Uh, I would think that that conversation is going to be bad. But some people, you know, it depends on how you look at it. The conversation could be, uh, why don't you give us a little money for each one of those users? And maybe developers are on board with that and say, yeah, sure, we're making tons of money off these 1 million users who are buying our app. We'll give you some portion of, you know, or maybe they'll balk at that and say, no, you don't get any of our money. Or like, I don't, I don't even know how that conversation will go, what it'll be about. And this guideline doesn't say it all. All right. Uh, and, the, and the next part. Additionally, if you are building a Twitter client application that is accessing the home timeline, account settings, or direct message a API endpoints, typically used by traditional client applications, or using our user stream product. So this big introductory clause is basically saying, if you're using what we all think of as a Twitter client, they have to define it in some way. So the way they've chosen to define it is if you're using this, that, and that API, which pretty much all regular Twitter client applications that people use to read and post to Twitter will end up using. That's their way of catching them. So that's fine. You will need our permission if your application will require more than 100,000 individual user tokens, right? So here's a, here's a new limit. So the million guys go to the principal's office, period, right? If you're making a Twitter client application and you eventually get more than 100,000 users or 100,000 individual user tokens, you need Twitter's permission. Now, how is that different than you got a million, we need to talk, and you get 100,000, you require our permission. We need to talk says nothing and it's more scary. Require permission at least says, okay, this is going to be a conversation about permission. We're not just going to talk. It's like, we need to talk means like you could be executed. Like, we're going to put a hit out on you, you know. <laughs> it's not, you require, not a good thing. You require permission. <laughs> at least now the conversation is framed in terms of, so uh, can, I, can I have 100,001 users? <laughs> at least it's in terms of permission. It's going to be, yes, you are allowed. No, you are not. Right. It's still a scary conversation. What is it about your product that would let you have permission or not? Uh, nobody knows, right? Uh, so... That's that's the next limit. All right, and then and hang on, we we still got to do we still got to do a sponsor. Take take a rest. Good idea. Okay, our first sponsor is Hover.com, simplified domain management. Let me tell you about these guys. I switched everything over to Hover, and I've told you about like what they are. But let me tell you again, there is a little search box at Hover.com. You type in the domain name you want. They'll tell you if it's available. If it's available, you click the little plus box. And that's it. I mean, that's you, you don't get signed up for a billion different things that you've never heard of and that you don't want. You don't have to uncheck 
50 services that will wind up charging you three, four, five times what you thought it was going to just to register a domain. There's one checkbox, and it, it asks if you want privacy on your domain. Who is privacy? So if someone does a who is, will it show who you are? That's the only thing, and that's free. And so I've told you about before. I read, you know, register.com, .net, .co TV. I like the CO and TV. But, of course, you can get all the regular ones there. And here's the cool thing about Hover. There are real people behind the scenes, real human beings they will help you. Now, Merlin, Merlin has a real problem with domains. I thought I had a problem. He's got a real problem. And you know, he's, he's in the process of, uh, of moving some stuff. Hover will move your domains for you. They will handle the entire transfer process. And believe me, that can be a tricky process. It seems like it should be easy. But th- the reality is registrars don't want you to move the domain names away. So they make it as hard as possible. Hover has it all figured out. They'll help you do it. They have human beings and a toll-free number. They answer the phone. They've got no-hold policy. It really is as simple as it sounds. And the only time you ever hear from these folks is when your domain name's up for renewal. They'll tell you, we're going to charge your card to renew it. You don't want them to do that? You cancel it. You get out. They never bother you again. They don't spam you. They don't upsell you. They're awesome. I've got all my stuff there, and uh, you should try it too. And I have a discount code for you, 10% off. If you use the code Dan sent me, one word, Dan sent me. You can also go to hover.com slash Dan sent me. It'll automatically apply it. And this thing's good on anything you do. Register domain name. You want to do their email hosting, which is really great. You want to transfer a domain, use it over and over. Dan sent me. Check them out, hover.com. I just bought a domain on Hover like two days ago. What'd you get? Do you want to share it? Uh, No, I don't want to share. I'm still, I'm doing that thing where like the domain I want is is taken and I'm getting variations on it and then I'm trying to contact the totally inattentive domain squatters who have the domains that I want. Mm. Those bidding sites and all you you've been through that. No, yeah, oh, I've been through plenty. What a what a nightmare. If those guys really wanted to make money, like here I am, I'm on the line, I'm ready to pay money and yeah. you just can't even get in touch with them. It's like, oh go through this crazy service. Oh the minimum bid is twenty thousand dollars. It's like come on. <laughs> you're not getting twenty thousand dollars from anybody. You're just you're leaving money on the table. Someone here is ready to pay you some amount of money. And you don't even use no contact. So that, that's depressing. But the, the ones that were available, I got through. Hubbard. Well, I fi- finally thought of a good I- idea for a Kickstarter project related to this. So, uh, a service that will go out and uh, assassinate people who are squatting <laughs> on domain. Actually, that's a better idea than the one I had. I was thinking I could start, you know, slowly. How long do you have for Kickstarter? Can you set it to be like five or 10 years? I don't think so. Well, because I, don't, it, I don't know. If you could, I would push this out. They're, the guy that owns 5x5.com. And by the way, for the record... I like 5x5.tv. I like it better. My goal would just be to have the what I do with the 5x5.net, I just redirect it to the TV. Yeah, I you want to be able to be able to type 5x5 and find it. Yeah, and don't do me a favor. Don't go to the .com. Don't even go there It's it, because it just it just builds up his uh, his self-esteem too much. He wants high six figures for the, for the .com. Yeah, I mean, come on. No one's paying that. <laughs> come, on, come on. It's a, it's a nice domain, but it ain't. Yeah, and even, High, if you could afford, even if you could afford that, you wouldn't pay it. No like, way. This is, a, this is the principle at that point. It's ridiculous. I like the .tv. Nobody's confused about it, but for the few people who do, I'd like, yeah, you know, re- redirect them over there. You should uh, just, so maybe uh, I'll do a Kickstarter. Well, you've got like the, whatever, trademark and all that stuff. Why don't you just sue them? Well, <laughs> once, you, once you have a business name 5 by 5 can't you take advantage of the, uh, the business-friendly... Not- atmosphere and, and, and the international name consortium and say, look, I own a business called 5 by 5 that guy's squatting on it, kick him out. I had no idea you were so litigious. 
I'm saying, like, why do they get five by five? Is are they running a legitimate business? Okay, fine. It's but a is, personal is squatting on it. You know, no, it's his personal thing. He's had it for decades. All right. Well, then I wouldn't. I wouldn't yell at the bride. I get. I have. The I have point. nothing against the guy. He seems like a nice guy. As long as it's not like a park domain. Like the one I wanted was like you know. He's park got his. Domain, pi- he's but. got pictures of his camping trip from 1998 up there. You got to leave him alone or let him sell on his own terms. So, so don't sue that guy. But the squatters. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's not. He's not well, you doing told me not it. Not to go there. I didn't go to the side. I don't know what's there. Good. Then don't go there. <laughs> All right. All right. Back to Twitter. All right. Uh, so you know, if you have a hundred thousand, you need our permission. Slightly nicer framing than we need to talk. Right. The next part. We're gonna is have. There. We're gonna have a sit down. <laughs> what was the line from Goodfellas? <laughs> that was on last night. I couldn't stop. I'm like, we need to do another show. <laughs> what was the line in Goodfellas? Well, you got to have a sit down and the, what? what is the line? Yeah, I think you got it. I don't remember. I remember the scene where you're talking about what you have to do if you want to whack somebody in another crew. Yeah. You have to, yeah, you have to get someone to say so and you have to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember the exact line, but yes. But this is worse than that because this isn't just... Right, here it is. You had to have a sit-down and you better get okay or you'd be the one that got whacked. Right. <laughs> That's the line. There you go. This is the Twitter as, as the new mob. Right, so they're, this is their conciliatory thing where they say, hey, we're, we're not bad guys. But this is what everyone was worried about. Like They know they're, they, they said don't make new third-party clients, but what about all those people who already made existing ones? It says, we will not be shutting down client applications that use those endpoints and are currently over those token limits. So I, even though it's, it's a nice thing, it's saying existing clients, you have lots of users, but it's phrased in such a way that we will not be shutting down, which is once again reinforcing the idea that Twitter can shut you down. I mean, that's clear. That's, it's always been clear. Like You're, you're using their API, you know, you're part of their API agreement. Like It's always been clear, but they're just kind of reminding you. Keep in mind that now and as always, we can shut you down if we want. So we will not be exercising that power that we totally have, reminder, uh, to shut you down if you have an existing client, Twitter, uh, Twitter client that has over 100,000 individual users. And I think there's probably a lot of those. I mean, Twitter ever probably has over 100,000 users. Lots of things have over 100,000. So if you're already over that limit, you don't have to immediately have a conversation with Twitter and say, can I get your permission, right? The rules are, according to Twitter, if your application already has more than 100,000 individual user tokers, you'll be able to maintain and add new users to your application until you reach 200% of your current user token count as of today. So if you have 750,000, oh, i got to pick an easier number. If you have 500,000 uh, users right now, you can go up to a million. No, no questions asked. So whatever, however many user tokens have been out at the time this blog post was put, you now have a cap on when you have to talk to Twitter and get permission. You can double your current number of users, but after that, you need to talk to Twitter. This is kind of a weird way to grandfather in. Like, real grandfathering would be like, uh, any existing Twitter client applications that have over, like, you know, you'd pick some low limit, you guys are grandfathered in forever and ever. That would probably make people not totally happy because we all want new, better Twitter clients, but it's a possibility, like, oh, say, say TweetBot is grandfathered in. You could say, well, TweetBot, the next version of TweetBot could be totally different. So it's not like we're completely stifling innovation because as long as you keep using the name TweetBot, you're still grandfathered in and blah, blah, blah. Right? Uh, but this is, this is actually worse. Say, so even you guys who are out there, you're kind of grandfathered in and you're allowed to double the size of your business, basically, assuming you sell your client. You can sell twice as many things as you've ever sold in the entire past, which still sounds pretty good because some people say, well, is there even really that much headroom? Can Twitterific double the number? Uh, you know, it's, I don't know how many copies it sold up until now, but. The entire history of Twitterific, however many you've sold, you can sell that number again before you have to talk to us. It's very much like a mob that, that well, don't do too good. 
Don't do yeah. too much better. I think this is their way of, of grandfathering in, but not like totally grandfathering in. Because if you said you're grandfathered in forever and ever, there's no such thing as forever and ever uh, in any sort of service agreement. And this is kind of an acknowledgement of that. And they're trying to make it like, look, that sounds good, right? You've made a lot of money so far. We're telling you you can make all that money over again. But after that, we need to talk. And it says, once you reach 200% of your current user token count, you'll be able to maintain your application to serve your users, but you will not be able to add additional users without permission. That's kind of weird in that, like, you're still permanently grandfathered in for the people who are current, up to that limit. Like, you could, for example, shut down your application for new purchases, but continue to give bug fix updates, I mean, ignoring the fact of whether this is possible or easy in the Mac App Store. Like, say you just sold it directly. Like, I bought my copy of Twitterific directly from Icon Factory. So they could say, okay, no new versions or no new users can download this, but if you're an existing user and have an existing uh, serial number or whatever, you will be supported forever. Twitter's not going to shut you down. So it's not like you reach that limit and all your users of your application get turned off. You just can't add any new users. Now, from a business perspective, that means like, okay, that product is dead. I can't sell to anyone new. I suppose you could get upgrade revenue from existing people, but it caps it. Uh, and that's not good because what you want with software is to be able to keep making money off that thing that you did a little while ago. That's the beauty of software. You, doesn't you don't have to develop the application again to sell another copy. You don't have to build another application to sell another copy. You can just keep selling copies of what you've done. It's leverage on your effort. You get more money without putting in any more effort for that one version. Of course, you have to do updates and security fixes and so on, but... To do that, you want to be able to, to get that leverage of continuing to sell it. Now, Adam in the chat room, or Adam underscore, points uh, us to a Macworld article, which I'll add to the show notes, where they discussed this with Paul Haddad, the lead developer for TweetBot's uh, TapBots. And apparently he said that his company won't stop work on its iOS and Mac Twitter clients anytime soon. He explained that the limit the company received from Twitter on how many users it can support is, quote, pretty huge. We aren't going to run out anytime soon. And apparently he had said that if sales continue at their current rate, the company won't hit its user cap for years. Yeah, it's kind of good that they announced this so relatively late in the life of Twitter. Imagine if in 2008 they had made the same pronouncement. People would have hit their caps quickly because Twitter itself was growing so fast that, you know, say, say you'd sold or we've sold 50,000 copies of our thing. Well, 100,000 could come in the next two months. But at this point, maybe you're at 500,000 and the growth has tapered off. Like the, the market for Twitter clients is starting to become saturated and now you're dependent on the growth of Twitter itself. And how much bigger can Twitter get? If they're at like 300 million, they can maybe get three or four times bigger until they're as big as Facebook. And that seems to be the current saturation point for people who are able and willing to use social media, right? Now, is this, so, is this a limit per client or per company? It's per client, right? Yeah, it's per, I guess it's per... Because uh, then, I, I mean... Uh, the the Tapbots guys they have the the Mac client out as well as the iOS client, so they're not they're not that's not shared that's not a shared limit. I think it's it's all talking about client application, right? So you have an existing client application, it doles out tokens, and the tokens you get allow that client application to access the API. Like when you go to the the Twitter API thing, it says here are the current applications that have access to your you know that you've that have access to the API in some way, and you and you see individual applications, you don't see companies. So I think it is per application. Uh, so I guess it is good for the guys who have grandfathered in uh, and that they feel like they have a lot of headroom. But I think it's mostly because, like, look, how much... First of all, if you've sold a lot of copies up to now, that gives you a lot of headroom because as many as you've sold now, you can double that. And if you just sold a little, doubling that, you could, you know, that doesn't make you feel good. But if you've been a long-time, uh, you know, seller of Twitter applications, now you've got a lot of headroom. And the second thing is I really think the growth uh, has... The growth of people who are buying third-party Twitter applications 
has lessened uh, because in the beginning it was all early adopters and they all knew what applications were and wanted to buy them and stuff like that. And now I forget what the, the percentage that I've heard uh, thrown around, but the, the majority of Twitter users are not using third-party applications. And that's where all the growth is in the new people, right? And those new people are basically the general population. And of the general population, a very small percentage of them are interested in third-party clients. It's very different than the early adopters who are all totally into third-party clients who are writing third-party clients themselves, right? So there probably is a lot of headroom in there. Uh, but there's still like an end point. Uh, you know, we're not going to just going to keep sinking money into this application because we know at a certain point we, we can look from our business. If we do really well, all we're doing is getting ourselves to our endpoint faster and then having to stop. And it's also when you hit that endpoint, even if it's years from now, you have to decide what you're going to do with all those existing users. They're grandfathered in, but are you going to continue to support them knowing you can never get uh, another cent? Or can you get another cent by providing upgrades to that application to the existing users? Maybe it's just an installed base that you know is never going to get any bigger and you keep selling them upgrades. That, that's possible, too. Of course, not in the Mac App Store. <laughs> Is it possible? But outside the Mac App Store, that's a possible business plan. But it kind of puts an endpoint. Uh, and like I said, this is, their, this is their way of making existing third-party developers feel better about what's going on. It's like, we, we appreciate what you did for us. Uh, you helped build our business. We're not trying to just shut you down because that was the, the big scare. Like, we're just going to shut you down completely. We're going to let you continue to exist and continue making money, hopefully for a long time, as recognition of the help you've done. But new people who want to make new clients, that 100,000 limit applies to you and should let you know, like, don't even start this. Don't even start trying to make a Twitter client application because you know as soon as you get 100,000, you're going to have to get a permission. And we're not telling you anything about what, what we're likely to say about that permission. Maybe we'll say no to everybody. Maybe we'll say yes to everybody. You don't know. So think about that. Think hard. Please don't make a Twitter client application. Like they said that 18 months ago, guys, don't make Twitter client applications, make something different. And now they're saying, okay, if you didn't listen to us, here's what's going to happen. 100K and then you need our permission and we're not going to tell you whether you're going to get it, likely to get it or not. Now, here's the thing about all these rules that I've just read about the number of users. All of this applies to applications, but only if they comply with all the other guidelines. So you, to even be in this game, if you have an existing Twitter application, you have to comply with everything else we talked about before. The display guidelines, you know, the authentication, all, the, all that stuff. Like, you have to just do that just to continue to exist. Assuming you do every single thing we said, we'll continue to let you to live up to these limits on users. So it's not like these guys are grandfathered in as is. They have to follow these, all the other rules as well. And so it's not like they're, you know, Twitter is still setting up those channels of control to say, you know, you're grandfathered in. But you guys don't get to do whatever you want. We have control over you as well. So even though you grandfathered in, if we decide that everyone needs to use Helvetica, you also have to use Helvetica. Like, you're, you're grandfathered in, then you're allowed to continue uh, you know, getting new users up to you know, double your current limit, but you got to follow our rules. So they now become, those developers now become viable channels for Twitter to sell its users to other people because Twitter has control over those channels through these guidelines. All right, so and the final section, the final one. Finally, as they say, <laughs> there, there may also be additional changes to the rules of the road to reflect functional changes in version 1.1 of the Twitter API that we've outlined here. And when I read this, what I hear is, I'm altering the deal. Play, pray I don't alter it any further. <laughs> this is totally what they're saying here. Yeah. Like, there may be additional changes. But, but you said, and they point your finger at you, and they say they're altering the deal. Pray they don't alter it any further. Because that's, that's what, you know unknown other changes could come. And this is kind of actually nice of them, not threatening, but nice of saying, do you realize what we've done here? We've set up this channel of control. 
That means that uh, if we wake up in the morning and decide everyone has to use an orange background, guess what? Everyone's got to use an orange background. If you don't, we take away your API token. So, you know, dance, monkey, dance. So, like, they keep them, you know, and they're saying there's going to be more changes. We're not going to tell you what they are, but they're going to happen. And when they happen, you got to follow them. So, like, watch this space, right? More, so more the, to come, as they say. Yeah. I mean, that's always implied. If they didn't have that paragraph, it would be clear that, like, look, these are the rules. This is the way the relationship's set up. Same thing with the App Store or anything else. They set the rules, and of course they reserve the right to change the rules. Once you, they've got you following any set of rules, now they've got you. Now they can pull this string, and you go that way, and pull that string, and you go this way. This is just reminding you. And, say, and this is also saying, like, look, we know there's stuff that we haven't put in this document, probably because we haven't decided it yet. They're coming down the line. Uh, be ready for it. Uh, so the migration period for this thing. So th this new API is supposed to be released. What is their exact phrasing? They say uh, in the coming weeks, 1.1 will be out. So we, there's no exact date, but that's kind of the time period frame. Uh, so when 1.1 comes out, at that point, as soon as 1.1 officially is released, 1.0 API will be deprecated and developers have six months to migrate their applications. So it's not like on the, on the day 1.1 comes out, if you don't exactly comply with the display guidelines and do everything they say, you get revoked. You got six months. And I think that's a reasonable period for developers to comply with guidelines that, that are now requirements that have been around for a while. You, you know, authenticated endpoints, using OAuth. This is a pretty gradual transition in terms of, like we've told you for a long time, you're going to need to, uh, it's been clear what the best practices are. And if you haven't been following them, because you've been like, ah, well, what are they going to do about it? Well, now, now we've taken out the stick. But six months seems like a reasonable amount of time for developers to update their applications or for developers to decide what the end game is for their products. Like, look at the rules we set out. See the direction we're going. Are you going to, you know, sunset your product, as, to use Marco's favorite term? <laughs> right. Are you going to stop supporting it? Are you, going to, are you going to comply with your requirements? How much more money and effort are you going to put into it? You've got six months, which I think is reasonable. All right, so that's the that's the requirements, and then they go into this kind of let, let's let Twitter tell you where we're coming from section, which d does not help their cause at all. Because if you are wondering, like maybe that top part was written uh, in a way that that seems vague and upsetting, but maybe their heart's in the right place, and maybe you know maybe it's just that it just got away from them there. So in this bottom part, they try to explain their their motivations, and they <laughs> there's no better way to explain your motivations. Then with a two-axis grid, filled, <laughs> who doesn't? With, don't you just with, when you sit down with your kids and explain why stealing is wrong? <laughs> don't you just break out a grid like this and spell it out? <laughs> yeah, the best thing about these grids, it, uh, these these axes, is it's one of those infographics where the things that are along the vertical axes, like the top point, is not the opposite of the bottom point, and the right point is not the opposite of the left point, right? So that. You could scramble the words at the endpoints of these axes, <laughs> and it wouldn't change this graph at all except for where things go. Like, it's not like it's a continuum, a continuum from engagement to analytics. No, there's no continuum, but there's just two words. Continuum, for, I guess consumer to business, maybe there's a continuum, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, so <laughs> here's their... Here, here's and then, their and then underneath, here's the best part of it, not to, to steal what you're saying, but underneath the, the, the grid, it's let me explain. Oh yeah, that, it's that's, just wow. That's weird writing. You don't, <laughs> don't you don't do that. And let me explain something to you. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. <laughs> I was. They should have put that in there. I mean, that would at least made people laugh. Right? That was that was a very bad Inigo Montoya. No, it was an excellent Inigo Montoya. <laughs> I try. All right. So the to, if people who aren't looking at this thing here, 
there it's a it's a cross axis here on the on the, the top of the y axis is engagement the bottom is analytics and then the left and right is from business on the left to consumer to the right all right so what they say is we are trying to encourage activity in the upper left lower left and lower right quadrants which is an awkward way of phrasing uh, of saying everywhere but the upper right so we're trying to discourage activity in the upper right but we're going to phrase that by saying we're encouraging activity in all the other quadrants and what are in these quadrants and again they don't refer to them by their names like they could say we're trying to discourage people from making traditional twitter clients they did not say that they said we're encouraging activity in the upper left lower left and lower right quadrants could you be any more <laughs> unclear you know I'll, let's put up a diagram that's arbitrary and let's reference parts of the diagram and then that way we can prevent ourselves from ever having to say what we really mean which is that you should make traditional twitter clients uh, so they say on the left side of the grid are applications that are targeted at businesses. Lower left quadrant, we've seen tremendous innovation in applications and services that serve the business market with analytic products based on Twitter content. So you've got uh, example companies that Crimson Hexagon, which I've never heard of, builds actionable reports for brands, media companies and political campaigns based on the conversations on Twitter. This is filled with brands. I wish I could have Marco read the whole thing because he would just do his brand stuff for everything. Uh, Topsy has built real-time analytics dashboard to help finance government and news brands react. And a data miner provides analytics for the finance industry. So on the left side are all things that businesses want to pull data out of Twitter. And that's what Twitter wants you to build. And they've seen tremendous innovation in these areas. Harvest, harvest our crop of users and figure stuff out from them. Figure out what's, what it means for your government, for the finance industry, for news. You know, by all means, uh, reap our crop and and make these cool products. Uh, so that's business and analytics. It's lower left. And the upper left quadrant, which is business and engagement, whatever the hell engagement is, all right? And the upper left, tools that help businesses engage with Twitter. Again, engage with Twitter, including social CRM providers. And what else do they have here? Integration companies like Mass Relevance, which aggregates and filters tweets for display on TV. Oh, yeah, we're sure we all love that. There's nothing better than tweets displayed on television. And there are companies, apparently, whose businesses are centered on that. Now, the words in this left half of the grass are social analytics, which means like harvesting user information, media integration, showing your tweets on TV, enterprise clients, and social CRM. Social CRM is when the guy, there's a, a, you know, a Twitter account for Tide, uh, laundry detergent and if you say something bad or good about tide laundry detergent that person engages with you and says oh i would like to help you with your problem with tide or great i i'm glad that you like tide and these people need tools to help them do that and these these are legitimate tools uh, and, and uh twitter wants this because what this means is that companies are now building on our platform because they realize we've got the users and you tide laundry detergent want to find those users and see what they're saying about you and talk with them so build on our service because uh, we, we're, we've got the people you want to talk to. So come through us. All right. They're all encouraging that. On the right-hand side of the grid are applications that are targeted consumers. That's us. In the lower right quadrant are services that use Twitter content for social influence rankings such as clout. We all make fun of clout and don't like it. And that's under consumer and analytics. Now, what's the difference between business analytics and consumer analytics? Business analytics is figuring out what people are saying and making decisions based on it because that's giving you some information about, you know, news or finance or whatever. Consumer analytics is uh, hot or not. Am I hot or not? How popular am I? Uh, what, what is the current trending thing going on? Like things that consumers want to know about themselves or what's popular or who's important and who's not important. Even though people like those types of things, like I can imagine a consumer analytics product would like, 
uh, rate the most attractive avatars on Twitter. Like, um, if someone hasn't already done that, they should because it's clearly something that people would want. But we, I, I don't know. Like, I view that as kind of appealing to our base instincts, uh, desire for, uh, I mean, even things like Favestar and stuff like that, where it's like, how many people favorited me and who's currently popular or who's currently influential or has lots of important followers or stuff like that. That's stuff that individual people are interested in for vanity's sake and for, you know, like you want to know who the important people in the tribe are so you can, you know, have a chance of mating with them to give your genes the best chance of, you know, all <laughs> sorts of evolutionary reasons why we're interested in what's going on in the herd, right? Uh, but all of that is kind of, for, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I think most people who are active Twitter users are concerned, it's a sideshow. What we want is to, you know, use Twitter. You know the thing that all the people signed up to do? The people didn't sign up to socially engage with Tide Laundry Detergent. They did not sign up to find out who is the most popular person and what their influence score is in the realm of dog underpants. You know, I have a high clout score. With, you know, that's not, why did all those people sign up to Twitter? Because they want to write into a little 140-character text field and send out a message and then follow people and see what they have to say. That's the whole service. That's what everything is built on. And they've spent... This entire document, the entire section of the document talking about those other three quadrants, which are not the product that everybody is using. And then finally, oh, by the way, I guess there's this thing that people use and it's called Twitter. All right. And in that quadrant, uh, in the upper right quadrant, they say the upper right quadrant also includes, of course, traditional and scare quotes, Twitter clients like Tweakbot and Echophone. And so nearly 18 months ago, we gave developers guidance that they should not build client applications that mimic or reproduce the mainstream Twitter consumer client experience. And to reiterate what I wrote in my last post, that guidance continues to apply today. Don't make Twitter clients. Please don't make Twitter clients. No, we're serious. Don't make Twitter clients. And yeah. it doesn't mean they don't want there to be Twitter clients. Obviously, Twitter itself makes Twitter clients, although they're kind of languishing. But I would assume they are either going to update or kill them. Uh, but, it, you know, they make the website. And they may start to feel, as Facebook seems to feel in, in many regards, that the only way you should be able to, to do Facebook stuff is with the official Facebook application on iOS, which used to be this web thing, but it was kind of gross, and now they're trying to make a native one, uh, or uh, use the Facebook website. And so Twitter is saying, look, we make it a way to, to use Twitter. It's our website, and it's our official client applications, which may or may not be going away, but tough luck. Please don't make other Twitter. It just makes it a hassle for us to control the experience. We have to set up all these horrible control channels and force you to do things and it makes us feel bad and but it's just what we have to do because this is the way we've chosen to make money uh stop doing that stop making us stop making daddy be, be angry like this <laughs> just stop just stop making uh, client applications we won't have this problem yeah and so the looking ahead is the last section beyond the the one point api we look forward to creating new ways for developers to not only build applications using data and content from twitter but also build interactive twitter cards and we talked about twitter cards on past shows so they're saying, developers, we still want you to develop. We just don't want you to make Twitter clients. We want to do that. You can make all those other things that do what we allow you to do to our information. Uh, so that's the, that's the story on Twitter here. They're, I don't think anything in this document is surprising. I think most of the things that, that might be surprising are surprising in a good way in terms of how they grandfathered people in. It's not the worst case scenario of them shutting off access to everybody. Uh, but uncertainty is spread throughout this document. It's like, it might as well be the background color. It's just uncertain color. And that will definitely, I think, put a chilling effect on future Twitter clients, which is exactly what Twitter wants to happen. How do you feel about all this? I think it's a bad thing. I mean, on the one hand, I understand where Twitter is coming from. I understand that... Twitter is a business. Twitter needs to make money. 
the way that they're going to make money eventually is obviously going to come from advertisements and they they are most concerned with the way that people consume Twitter. You've outlined why uh, very well. We don't need to go through that, but I think they need, want and need to control that because the value of Twitter is in consuming the stream, consuming the feed, consuming what people are sharing. That's where they want to make their money or where they need to make their money, whether those things are showing up on TV or wherever else. They don't want other people to cash in on that. If they had been really smart, they would have realized this early on and they would have controlled that kind of access. And their API from day one would have been, how do you, how do you clever application, get your data onto Twitter so that all of our amazing Twitter users can see it? And if they had gotten that part of Twitter early enough before they opened up the API to let people do what they're doing now by making full-on Twitter clients, I think every single day that there's another Twitter client out there that's not theirs, they're unhappy about it. And, that's and an, your that's advice an is good. Question, though. They're like, that's, I think, why there's a lot of bad blood, because you mentioned, you know, like you said, if, they, and because if this was these the deal apps, from the start, yeah. then it wouldn't have been a big deal, but now it's a change. Now, here's the question. These apps, if, by the way, are the reason, are a big part of the reason why Twitter is so popular, yeah, so that's, that's, and that's why people are so upset. That's the question, though. Like, we, we assume, like, you know, we know how Twitter actually evolved. And from our perspective as nerds and stuff, a, a big reason Twitter became popular is because of this big explosion of third-party applications. And the question is, if that hadn't happened, if Twitter had known from day one, look, we totally going to need to have control over how people access Twitter. Uh, so let's, let's exert that control from day one. So no third-party Twitter clients. Like, would Twitter have been as successful? And from our perspective, we think, well, of course it wouldn't, because like, the only reason I was interested in Twitter at all is because it had these cool clients. I'm not sure if that's actually true, though. It's true, certainly from our perspective. I know I wouldn't uh, be, be such an active Twitter user if it war wasn't for all those clients. I mean, I know lots of people say, I, wouldn't, I would never have even tried Twitter if it wasn't for Twitterific. Uh, but that's just a bunch of computer nerds. It, does it mean that the service wouldn't have even got off the ground without us alpha geeks and the third-party clients? And it's so hard to speculate about, like, you know, what, what could have been. What, what, you know, if they hadn't done that, would the service have become popular at all? The, the one, one side of that argument is, you need the alpha geeks and the early adopters to get to get the ball rolling. And because then you hear all, what are all the nerds talking about and then you start to tell your non-nerd friends and then it gets the ball rolling. And at a certain point, you become irrelevant and the mass market goes for it. Uh, and the other argument is, even without the alpha geeks, the service was just like, at the time was right, it was a good idea. If there was no clients, the geeks would have ignored it, but the regular people would have come on board eventually and we'd still end up in a world where hashtags are appearing underneath every single freaking thing you see on television. <laughs> Boxed in, by the way, let me do a side rant here. In the 4 by 3 aspect ratio, this drives me nuts. The, the, the little bugs they have in the corner of the television screen, they're always within the realm of a 4 by 3 old school standard definition screen. They're never off in the corner of the HD thing. And it's because our television industry is so incredibly technically inept that their, their equipment can only do one overlay. And they just say, okay, well, this is the SD and the HD screen. And on the HD, we're going to show the sides, and the SD, we're not. But our overlay technology has to put the overlay within the bounds of 4x3. And what this means is if you're watching television show in HD, you see the stupid little bug or hashtag like covering up some person's face because it's not off to the side of the frame. It's right in the middle. Do you know what I'm talking about Yeah, here? I know exactly what you're talking about. And I find anything that Twitter's doing, no, I mean, obviously it's not Twitter that's doing it. But anybody who tries to find a way to put tweets up on a screen while we're, I don't want that. Don't do that. They do that all the time with the deadliest catch 
and after the catch. And it it's just awful. I just wish it because I don't always, you know, sad. It's not it doesn't always tape the first one and the second time around. They'll put these tweets. It's so bad, John. It's so bad. Oh, no, I, I saw that. What did I see that on recently? I saw it on a similar show. I'm like, are people doing this in real time? No, this must no, be it's, your it's recorded like, one. Yeah, it's like while the first show is recording, somehow they're maybe it's just hashtags, but somehow they're collecting them. And then a, a person is going through and I guess picking tweets that they Right, that they think are good, and, and yeah. I don't know who some intern somewhere doing this. And then when they re-air the show, it's aired, and it's almost aired as like a bonus that it has this stuff on it. So if you make the uh, horrendous mistake of watching that one or accidentally taping that one instead of the the uh, first airing of it, you're stuck with these awful tweets that do all the things you're, you're talking about going over the screen over the person's head or whatever and it's so distracting it's not like like last night goodfellas was on and they had little this little pop-up thing where they would have trivia and information about the movie and it was done in a very i forget which channel it was on i mean i don't care if goodfellas is on i'm, I'm putting it on so i wasn't even paying attention but the way they did it very intrusive very nice and and these tweets are so awful. If I want to see the tweets, I'll just look at the hashtag on, on Twitter or my client, whatever. Like, why do I have to see that? It's not it's like, good. It's not a good mix of media. It's it? like it's like forcing people to watch television with an obnoxious person who makes comments the whole time. <laughs> and, you like, can't, and you can't make them stop. Yeah. And in, in your individual life, you can choose to watch television with that friend <laughs> who makes snide comments or not right. watch something with that person who makes snide comments. And the second thing is, I've, I think a lot of us have watched television like I know the last Oscars or maybe the last two Oscars things I've watched. I've watched with my iPod touch in hand looking at the Twitter feed. But the difference is I'm seeing the snarky comments from the people I follow who I think are funny or interesting, Right. And when you put them on the television, it's like one set of snarky comments for the entire world. And, and if you don't, if, if you would never have followed any of those people in real life, you, tough luck. You're seeing their stupid comments. And by the way, they're covering up your show. Right. But I was actually talking about the specific complaint of these things being within standard definition four by three rectangle. Well, because that shoves them in from the sides, even when it's just like the ABC logo. Like if, That's I, I the least of know. my concern. I just want those things gone entirely. Yeah. I mostly want them gone too, but I realized that the ABC logo is probably going to appear for a couple seconds in that little overlay thing, and I don't mind it. It just, it just like I assumed once everyone went HD, that little bug would actually tuck itself into the corner of a sixteen by nine screen. But nope, nope. Sports, everything is still shoved in the middle of four by three, and it, uh, it drives me insane. Like sports are, are terrible like that too. Like, uh, you know, I watched some tennis recently, and the tennis score will be shoved in from the side so it fits on a four by three screen because they couldn't do two separate overlays, one for the HD feed and one for the SD feed. Terrible TV people. Get your acts together. Let's do our second uh, second sponsor. All right. Second sponsor today. Squarespace.com. Everything you need to make an amazing website. Fully hosted, John. Completely managed. You go there. You want to make something beautiful. Blog, portfolio. You don't know any HTML. You don't know any CSS. You don't have to. They've got this thing called Layout Engine. It's their page builder. And it's drag and drop. And it really is simple and it really does work. And that's the thing. For years, for so many years, the closest thing you got to this was like just a WYSIWYG where you could type and you could hit Command-B and it'd make it bold or something. Well, yeah, I mean, they've got all that. That's old school now. That's old hat. They have this layout builder that actually lets you build the page. You can see exactly what it's going to work. Oh, you want to integrate Twitter? Just drag the thing over. You want to embed some images? Just click the thing. It's so easy. And that's the thing is, is that nowadays... 
There are tools like this. So you don't have to worry about hosting something yourself. You don't have to become an expert in some random software that you then have to get a hosting account and install PHP and get MySQL running and make sure it's secure. I mean, why would you want to do that when there are these solutions out there that do it for you, especially if you want someone else to maintain the content so that you can go back to focusing on whatever it is that that you do? Or if you're building something you're going to deploy to a client, this will save you so much time. Let me get back to the thing that's important, which is creating content or building other things. And they, all of this stuff is built in, and it's all responsive. Go check out go check out bigweek.co or blog.5by5.tv. Now, these are just basic templates that they've done, and I've just done minimal customizations, but they're all responsive. So look at it, look at it on your iPhone, or you know, shrink the browser down and check it out. It really is amazing. All this stuff is built in. And uh, it's very affordable. If you sign up for a year, they give you 20% off. If you sign up for two years, they give you 25% off. And in either of those two cases, you get a free domain name registration. Now, if you don't want that and you want to go for a, for a shorter thing, you can do that too. And you can still hook up your own custom domain for it. Uh, but you can go there and you can try it out free for two weeks. And if you use uh, my coupon code or promo code, it's uh, Dan sent me eight, the number eight, because this is August. Dan sent me eight. You'll get 10% off anything you do there. It'll also help support the show. And you can go to squarespace.com slash five by five to learn more about that. So go check them out today. Thanks very much. Longtime sponsors. And uh, we love those guys. I use them myself. Super cool. Squarespace.com slash five by five. I think uh, rather than try to jam in some more mountain lion stuff here, I think we should continue to talk about things related to Twitter uh, and such. And, uh, Specifically, I mean app.net because I didn't get a chance to talk about that because the news, I don't know, did the news happen after my show or did I just skip it because I, I was doing Malline stuff? No, I think, I think it happened right around then. The news I'm talking about, of course, is that the app.net project, which we've been talking about for a while on the show, met its funding goal in fairly dramatic fashion. It didn't look like it was going to be able to hit it. It was like less than halfway there with only, you know, a week or two left. And uh, then it raced up at the last minute and shot way past its goal. Way past. The sort of piling on effect. Uh, I think you talked about the the piling on effect. Was it with Marco? Probably. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, by, and by the way, congratulations to you. Uh, you have more followers on app.net than anybody else that I know or follow significantly more than than people who on Twitter have like millions of followers. Uh, you still have more right now as it stands. And by the way, I, I've got your app.net account as well as mine uh, linked up so people can immediately follow you. You at, at right now you have 1,319 followers. I don't know if that's the most on app.net. I doubt it, but it's probably up there. I have, I have a mere 847 I was doing well on app.net because I was there early and yeah. stuff. So the, the number one, there's a little thing that ranks them. The number one follower person is the founder, Dalton. Dalton. Who, I had to actually unfollow him, unfortunately. Yeah, because of the replies thing, yeah, I know. It's crazy. I'm, I'm but he's only got double what you've got. He's only got like 2,200. Like you're in. Well, you're there's only there. like 5,000 people in the whole service. So. Still. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gruber is in second with like 1,900 something. I was in third place for a long time, but I, last night I saw that Marco was going to pass me. And he has passed me. So he's Marco is a little bit past me. He's got 1,360 something. I've got 1,319. But it makes sense, though, because you, you figure, like, on the long graph, the follower accounts on app.net will be similar 
uh, percentage wise or, or you know placement wise to the, what they are on Twitter. And on right. Twitter, Marco has like double my number of followers, and Gruber's got like twenty times as many. Right, so it's going to settle on that eventually. But I had this brief honeymoon period where all the cool people hadn't yet come, and the only people people <laughs> knew on App.net to follow on was me, and they were following me. So thanks for everyone who put me in third place for a short period of time, and now I will settle back down to my traditional place lower on the list. Uh, but yeah, so App.net met their funding goal. Uh, I think the piling on effect was real because people want to vote for a winner. So once it's clear that they're going to make it, then it becomes a mad rush among nerds to get their usernames. And Merlin ranted it, quite bitterly, I was surprised, about the whole App.net phenomenon on, on Back to Work uh, and about how he felt compelled to get his username. And I, I think I mentioned this way back when we first talked about App.net, that this was a good idea to make reserving your username part of it because uh, you know, for, for nerdy people... A lot of our identity is tied up with our online identity, and it feels bad to us not to be able to get the online identity we want. Uh, and so that was a smart way to get funding. And then once it became clear it was going to be funded, people were like, oh, I, I better hedge my bets because I, I really want to make sure. I don't want it to end up like it did on Twitter. For the people who were late comers to Twitter and didn't get the name they wanted, they're like, let's not repeat that. So 50 bucks, it's, it's worth it to them just to... It's the same reason people buy so many domain names, like especially people like me who tend not to use them. Merlin actually uses his domain name, so he's, he's buying them with purpose. But... I buy them just because, like, oh, I might want to put something in that domain name. And, you know, I never do whatever, but I just want to have the name because the cost of not having the name could be, you know, going through one of the stupid auction sites and making some guy try to make you pay $20,000 for it. It's like, I'll just pay, pay over the 15 bucks now and get the domain name and not have to worry about it. If you don't use it, then fine. If someone else wants it, you can sell it to them or give it to them, like, whatever. It's just easier to have the name. So a lot of people said, all right, looks like this app.net thing is going. I'll just pay $50 to get the name. I don't even know if I'll even use it. I just want to get my name. Uh, and so, they, what did they end up at, like seven fifty or something like that? Yeah, let me see. I'll put that in, in the show notes too. I, I'm looking at the we did it thing. We met our 500k goal with 38 hours left. Yeah, but what was the final tally? It was 600,000. Uh, in I, that, no, I, I think they crossed seven, didn't they? Did they? Let's see here. Pretty sure they crossed seven. I'm but I, I was surprised at how far they went past because I, I you know, it, once it became clear they were going to reach their goal, even that was surprising. I was like, wow, this is really getting ahead of steam at the end. And I'm not sure what did it like. I mean, Gruber did finally decide to link it on Daring Fireball, and I'm sure that had a big effect. Uh, maybe that was it. Maybe that's what put it over the top. Or maybe it was just an accumulation of, you know, Marco talked about it in his podcast. I've been talking about it. Uh, Gruber talked about it. It just became as the buzz started to build. Uh, I thought what would happen is the buzz would build. People would look at the page and see it was like it, it less than half its goal and go, ah, it's not going to make it and ignore it. But it, it went the other way. It started to gather steam. And once it did, it became a big uh, domain name reservation thing. And the, the sad part for those people is that they're letting, they're allowing access slowly. So even if you paid your 50 bucks, it doesn't mean you're going to be in on the alpha version of the site. They're doling out alpha access slowly, which is frustrating that if you've got this enthusiasm up and you're like, oh, I'm going to pay this $50. And you know there are people out there using this thing. And by the way, the alpha, I was surprised at how well the alpha worked. Like, bugs, I haven't even seen any bugs. It doesn't have all the features that Twitter has, but, like, it's the first alpha that came out. It worked. You could use it to do the thing that it was supposed to do. Uh, you know, and it wasn't that fancy, and it, and it could use more features, and we all making requests or whatever, but it wasn't just a buggy piece of crap that, you know, it's better than the alpha of most alpha software I've seen. And so I understand people frustrating that, that they can't get in, but... I'm also glad that these guys have learned the lesson of Twitter and not said, okay, everybody come flooding in and just hose the service because the worst thing that could happen to the service now is it become completely unresponsive and their equivalent of the fail whale appears and people are like, I paid 50 bucks and this thing doesn't even work. <laughs> uh, so if you still haven't gotten in... 803,000. Uh, over 12,000 backers. 
There you go. So but that, that, the only place I see that is on their little updates page on the join.app.net thing. It, it, they don't actually say it anywhere else that I can find. And of course, we don't know what the actual number is because now if you go to the join.app.net page, it says reserve an account, $50 right. for a member, and people are still paying money you know, to, to join the service. That's the whole point. This wasn't just a Kickstarter where, hey, give us money so we can start this free service. The whole idea behind it is that you're going to pay to use it because that's a better model for you know, how we nerds want to work things, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so th- they're slowly giving people who have paid their $50 access to the alpha in a way that will make it so the service doesn't fall over. And as I tweeted when they hit their funding goal, I said, congratulations, now comes the hard part. And that wasn't like facetious. That was, you know, as hard as it may have seemed to be to gather momentum and get people excited about this effort and the whole kerfuffle with the tweeting and uh, your, you know, to claim your Twitter username and make doing those robo tweets and stuff like that. That was the easy part. The hard part is, can you build a service that, a, people feel it's worth $50 to sign up for, right? Because we were given $50 blind, like, you know, just the promise of our service. But now you have to sell something that's worth $50 a year. And B, assuming you make something that's really desirable to people who want to pay $50 for it for a year, how do you make that scale? Like, just the basic web scaling stuff. I think I talked about it on past shows. We still basically don't know there's no, like, standardized good way to say, oh, so you want to make a web scale business? Just do this. Everybody is something a little bit different, and everybody seems to have growing pains. It's not as easy as, like, for example, an iOS application. If you got, if you gathered together the best iOS developers in the world, they could make a kick-ass iOS application, and they wouldn't be like, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure what to do. Is this how are we going to do this? Like, maybe have questions about UI and stuff, but it would be an awesome, polished, great iOS application. We know how to make that. Right? There's no mysteries. Where if you get the the best server-side software engineers in the world together and say build an online service. It's still going to have times when it gets like overwhelmed and it's crashy and they have problems. Like, we don't have a magic thing of saying, I just want to have everyone in the world read and write to this gigantic shared data store. There's no easy solution for that. Every solution is hard. Everyone does something a little bit different. There are plenty of things that work. I mean, Facebook works. You know, Twitter works. Uh, all these other services work, but they have growing pains and it's tough. And every one of them is doing something different, which, you know, which is scary if you're setting out to do this because you can't look at, all right, should we do what Facebook does? Okay, well, I guess we'll use PHP, but compile it to C++ and make a one gigabyte executable contain that. No, let's not do that. What can we do what Twitter does? Well, they were using Ruby on Rails, but that didn't work. So they just Rails for the front end, but they're using some key value store in the back end. Can we, <laughs> like, nobody knows. Nobody knows how to freaking make a, a, a web scale service. So uh, it's going to be hard. Uh, for app.net, like they're concentrating, oh, let's implement the features people want. Let's add favorites. Let's uh, tweak the rules. Let's let's make this is their reference implementation, the alpha that app.net. Like people are already making Mac applications. I downloaded two of them this morning and just played with them. Right, there's a lot of work for everybody to do, but in the end, they have to provide an endpoint for an API that scales and you know performs well for the number of people who are going to be accessing it and it is stable and is is relatively bug free and all that good stuff. That is the hard part of this, making that service. Uh, and I guess the even harder part is building the ecosystem of third-party clients that they, you know, the whole point of this is we're going to make this sort of information superhighway, let's call it, for, <laughs> for, for Twitter-like things. And we want to build an ecosystem around that. So the social aspect of building an ecosystem is hard, but also the actual technical job of building. Now, the, the thing they have going for them is that they're not going to get 300 million users in a year because 300 million people are not willing to pay $50 a year for pretty much anything. Ever in the entire world, right? Except cable television, obviously. 
yeah, so it, I think their growth will be much slower than Twitter and that will give them a chance. Maybe that'll even give them a chance to not have to, to, to use technologies that wouldn't work at Twitter scale. Maybe they can get away with using technologies that are easier for them to develop uh, without the fear that they're going to be overwhelmed by millions and millions of users because they're simply never going to have millions and millions of users. Uh, I wish I could have uh, actually... I'm actually glad I'm not linking these, but there's been a bunch of stories, a bunch of backlash stories about app.net. Surprise, surprise. Anytime you have a successful uh, Kickstarter type phenomenon, there's going to be a backlash of what are all these suckers doing paying all this money? And one of the big concerns was that this is an exclusive country club for, for, people, for people listening to this podcast, for nerdy people, right. uh, where they're going to go and pay $50 a year. And uh, the most terrible ones I've seen are the ones that compare it to white flight where, you know, the, the white people moving out of the inner city as black people move in, fleeing to their own gated community. One of the things was titled, uh, you can't start a revolution from a country club. So here we are in our little country club of all the people who can pay $50. And we're going to, but we're going to start a revolution to change the way business is done on the web. Well, you can't do that from a country club. And other people saying that any social media product you make ever, by definition, social, social media must be democratic. Therefore, it must be free. All of these premises, like I think there's, one tiny possibly valid point in each one of them, but it's cleverly hidden in a bunch of other crap. Uh, I mean, I, I th- as I've said about app.net for a long time, whether this is successful or not, all of us who pledge money would like to live in a world where you can charge money to your users in exchange for a service. And there's so many other businesses that are like that that we like. We, we give money for something and we get something back and we're happy with it. Uh, there's also services that are different. This podcast you're listening to now, you're not giving anybody money for. It's advertiser-supported. Right? Both of those models can work, but we have an actual concrete example of something very much like App.net called Twitter that will not ask us for any money, and we don't like the way it's changing. Uh, we just spent the first half of the show talking about how uh, all these changes, and these changes are only upsetting to nerdy people who care about third-party work lines. But that's us. That's, that's what we care about. And so I think this is the market at work we are dissatisfied with one product an alternative product is offered to us that's more appealing and we go purchase it i don't think app.net has any responsibility to be the replacement for twitter or the free it has to be free because everyone needs access to it what if it's just something that people want to buy and it's just a bunch of nerds hanging out together that's not there's nothing wrong with that i mean macintosh computers are like that have been always and still are. Oh, well, you've got a Macintosh. Well, yeah, I guess it's only for the fancy people. You know, I guess you're all, all those people who can afford a $1,000 laptop instead of a $300 one. They're just going to be, you know, fleeing the suburbs as the rest of us come in with our Dell PCs and you're going to be out there. Look, it's a product. It's offered to a price to customers. It makes money. That's the end of it. I'm happy that the Mac is out there for me to buy, right? Uh, now, I mean, the ideal is, you know, oh, I want a service that, everybody likes that's also free and that can happen i'm not saying it's impossible but twitter has gotten critical mass in this area and the way the way it's acting doesn't appeal to a certain class a very tiny class but a certain class of users so those users are going to a service that does appeal to them and i see nothing nefarious or bad or wrong about that at all i see it as the market working correctly uh now as i've said in past shows i have the same fears as everyone else what if app.it never gets more than a couple nerds will it even be interesting won't i feel like i'm left out if I'm only on app.net and I'm missing out on all the people that, you know, app.net doesn't appeal to. I'm not trying to coerce people to join up with app.net. It just it costs money. Like, it's kind of like, you know, saying, hey, I'm Syracuse over at app.net. I can't say come follow me because you got to pay 50 bucks. Right. If you don't want to pay, if you don't want to pay 50 bucks, don't pay 50 bucks. That's how it works. It's supposed, it's like the Penny Arcade Kickstarter. If you don't want to pay money for it, don't pay money for it. Like, 
that's how the system works. But apparently enough people are uh, disappointed enough with the direction Twitter is going to try this other thing over here. And the hope we have is that the incentives are all aligned to our satisfaction over here on app.net. We pay them money. They make something that we like. And next year, when they want us to pay more money, we're going to have to look at, look, did you give me something that I liked for that $50? And new people are going to have to say, all right, once they can see what the thing looks like, here's what it is. Is that something that I want? Who, who's on this service? How does it work? What are the clients like? Is this something worth paying for at all? But luckily, they're incented to satisfy us. We are their customers, and they're making an API, and the same thing with the client developers. They're all working for us because we are the source of all the money. Right. And that is a, a sensible system that seems like it doesn't have all the same downsides as the, the Twitter system or the Facebook system or the cable television system or any of the systems that try to give us something for free or reduced price in exchange for selling access to us to other people. Uh, so I, I was actually surprised at the at how big the backlash was uh, on this topic. Uh, the one piece of the, the one piece of backlash that I feel like has still has a valid point, although there it's also overblown, is the idea that anything like this should not be controlled by a single company. It should be open like email is or like RSS is. Uh, Dave Weiner has talked about this extensively because he's big on RSS and, and say we should have something that's decentralized, that's federated, that's open source, that isn't controlled by any one party. Uh, I agree that totally is the ideal, and many services have tried to do that. They just haven't been able to get off the ground for whatever reason. Maybe it's really hard to do that. Like email succeeded because it was there first. And they tried to replace it with things that are not like regular internet email. But it turned out that the network effect of being able to email anybody anywhere is more important than, uh, you know, we can get everybody on CompuServe and they'll just do, you know, to contact each other on CompuServe. But even they had to expose email addresses with their big long comma separated strings of numbers. Like there was no avoiding it. Right. The internet is that big network, though. It's difficult to build a protocol on top of it that gets mass popularity that has no central control. RSS, you know, tons of websites and people use RSS, but it never became Twitter. And maybe is it because there's no central authority behind it to be the figurehead? No branding behind it? Uh, I, I'm not sure what stops it from, from gathering momentum, but, you know, we had uh, Identica and Status.net, which is an open source thing, and various other sites that build on Status.net. Identica is one of them. That, like where they're federated and separated and no central control. I, I would be all for one of those, but you know they just haven't grabbed my interest or the interest of other people. And they seem like things that would just fizzle. I had less faith in that they would go anywhere than this because this I see how it's going to work. We're going to pay them money and they're going to build something and hopefully they're going to build something that we like. And if we don't, we won't pay them anymore. So they're highly motivated to build something that we like. That makes sense to me and all the other people. It could be just a case of right place, right time, or Identica and status.net. Identica was kind of there when Twitter was having farewells and stuff, right. but we all kind of stuck it out and we're like, you know, the, Twitter will probably figure, figure it out and, and they'll, they'll rewrite their back end. And they kind of pretty much did, and it's not as bad as it was. And we kind of, but you know, they tried to capitalize on that dissatisfaction, but it just didn't work. Like Twitter had gotten too big at that point. This is doing a similar thing at a similar time period. Oh, dissatisfaction with Twitter rules about third pl- uh, party client developers, let's take advantage of that, let's build this thing, uh, you know, and so a lot of people are on board with it. Uh, you know, the, the fear is that okay, so we're all pissed about these third-party rules, but in the end, they don't turn out to be that big of a deal. All the clients that we use never reach their caps, and we just continue using them happily, and the guidelines aren't that bad. Uh, 
and Twitter never impl- adds any rules and doesn't force us to see cards. It doesn't force us to see ads and just a business continu- continues as usual, usual and app.net fizzles. That's entirely possible, right? In fact, I think, you know, someone uh, asked me a question when I was, I, I asked a question on Twitter if anyone had any good Zelda icons. And by the way, if you, if you know of any good Zelda icons, please use the contact form. And uh, send me about them. Yes, yeah, so you're very, and you you linked to a set of older Zelda icons, I guess, and you wanted it to be better than those, at least as good as that, like high quality Mac OS 10 size, like 256, you know, pixels by 256 or bigger or better uh, Zelda icons. Because I, I have a little collection of my own, but I I would like some more. Anyway, I asked that on Twitter, and I think someone said, uh, "When is App.net going to get to the point where you can ask on App.net if anyone has any Zelda icons?" Yeah, and my answer was probably never. Like if I had to be a betting man and say, will will app.net ever get to the point where I can ask a general question like that? That's not it's kind of nerd specific, but it's taking advantage of the fact that I have, you know, whatever, 20,000 followers on Twitter. It's a broad spectrum of people. And I can say, hey, anybody out there seen any cool Zelda icons? And there's enough other people there that they're going to answer. My 20,000 followers are all not going to pay $50 for app.net. It's just not going to happen. And this gets back to Marco's advice to them, which I think there's definite sense in. It just, you know, now's the time to massively lower your price. You've, you've soaked the early adopters. You've gotten your project off the ground, but it's time to figure out how little can you actually charge and, and maintain your business. Uh, it's not a race to the bottom because we're not saying you need to go free. Like, that's the opposite of <laughs> we all want you to continue to charge money. Charge enough money so you, can, you don't have to sell us to other people to keep your business going. But to the extent that you can lower your price and still make a profit and stay in business and grow... Uh, now would be a good time to do it because it's really difficult to get more than the 5,000 nerds that backed you onto, or 10,000 or whatever it is onto the service if each one has to pay $50 a year. It's like a, it's like a VIP booth, you know, where everybody pays to get into the game, maybe. Or maybe it's a free game, but you get to, you know, this is, this is like the, the little booth. It's a subset, but it's a nice subset. You know you don't have the reach that you do where you can say, hey, what laptop bag do you use? And you're going to get, you know, 1,000 great suggestions but in a way it's almost like it's talking to people that are more on the same page in a way because of that lack of it's almost like a lack of diversity of of people you know they're the geeks you know they're the like geeks and uber geeks and developers and it is a very small subset of a subset i say what what is joining together all the people that are on app.net now is a belief in the business plan, a belief in, the, yeah. in services where you pay money in exchange for a service and a general dissatisfaction with services that refuse to ask us for money and sell us to other people. That's what joins the people together. I'm, I mean, I guess you could say, OK, there's a big overlap between that set and geeks. But that's why I found those articles about like white flight so offensive, because the thing that's joining together everyone after that has nothing to do with race. Like on the Internet, no one knows if you're a dog. I have no idea if the other people <laughs> using this are, you know, uh, yeah. AIs or robotic vacuum cleaners or I have no idea who anybody is in this. That's the whole point of the internet. We're all there because we believe in their business model and don't like Twitter's and that's what's joining us all together at this point. Uh, And I don't and maybe we have other things in common but I'm not following everybody on app.net. Basically what I'm doing is each person who I follow on Twitter as they come on app.net I follow them and those are the people who I'm actually interested in and for whatever reasons that we have similar interests or whatever. It's not like I go to app.net because it's an exclusive country club and I like that sort of people. There's tons of people on Twitter. I just don't follow them, right? Who, like, and there's going to be tons of people on app.net that I don't follow. I'm not going to app.net to escape people I don't like on Twitter. That's the most offensive thing I find about this. Is that somehow 
Twitter has everybody and I can't be near everybody, right? It's the same thing with Facebook. I don't not go on Facebook because I don't like everybody, right? I, oh, there's too many people on Facebook. I don't, I don't like the product. I don't like what Facebook does for me. I, you know, everyone I know is on Facebook, but I would rather follow them on Twitter because they say more interesting things on Twitter in a more interesting way. Those same people are on Facebook and I probably have friended them or whatever on Facebook. But I don't go to Facebook because I don't like the Facebook product, right? So I, I think, you know, and that's going to have to change with app.net where what's, is that going to be the unifying force is behind app.net forever? It's going to be all the people who, don't, who are dissatisfied with Twitter's moves. Is that going to define the service? Is that going to limit how many people can be on the service? You know, how many people yeah. are dissatisfied with, with Twitter's moves? How many people even know what the hell announcement happened yesterday? That's the, up the glass ceiling on app.net service. Maybe. And that's, you know, maybe it will never get any bigger than that. But it doesn't affect my usage of app.net because my experience of app.net is seeing the things posted from the people that I follow. And I follow people based on who they are, you know, not based on the, oh, you're on app.net, I'm going to follow you. No, if I don't follow you on Twitter, I'm probably not going to follow you on app.net either. It's not like a club where all like, oh, now we are all together and we can hang out and I'll follow everybody on app.net. No, I'm following the same people I'm following on Twitter. It's simply, you know, a replacement of, Twitter with this other service that I that I that has a a, lot, a model that I like better. And that's a lot of question people ask me. Are you going to leave Twitter now? There are tons of people who I follow on Twitter who are not an app.net who are probably never coming to app.net, and I want to continue to follow them. So no, I'm not leaving Twitter. Uh, Twitter guidelines, by the way, I don't think we emphasize this. The new guidelines make it clear that you cannot make a client application that integrates Twitter. Right. You can't have posts. one. You can't have one. You know how we have uh, Adium or Adium, however you want to say it how we have one contacts list where it shows everything. And I guess you can do that with messages now too. They, they, you may not do that. You absolutely can't. You can't get a version of TweetBot or whatever that's going to show you an integrated, smooth timeline with everything. And when you reply to a person, it just replies in the right place. Wouldn't that be nice? But of course, no. We will never well, see that. That was one of the things that people kept suggesting on app.net is, hey, app.net guys, you should make an adapter layer that looks like the Twitter API but accesses your service. That way, people who make Twitter clients could easily integrate your feedback. And thus far, app.net has not done that. And maybe they figure that, look, no, Twitter's never going to let us make a client that integrates our stuff with Twitter. So that's out. And the only, that, then the only remaining advantage of implementing Twitter's API is to say, okay, if you are a Twitter client developer or maybe you're in the middle of working on a Twitter client or maybe you've got an existing one, you can quickly change that into an app.net client without too much work on your part because, hey, we've emulated their API. And I still think that probably is a good idea. But then when I, when I uh, play that out in my mind, I think, oh, they're going to get sued because their API is copyrighted or they have some BS patent. Like, there's all sorts of ways. Of, but when you're imitating someone else's API, that they can come and swat you down for reasons that don't make any sense. So in the end, it may be better for app.net to just continue with its own API, which is nicer than Twitter's API anyway and has more features uh, and just not worry about that adapter layer, which is just a distraction. Because like in the past, you know, like I'm looking at two Mac OS X app.net client applications on my desktop right now, and those didn't exist, you know, a couple weeks ago, and here they are. So obviously it's not uh, rocket science to create an app.net client. It's possible. People are doing it. I'm sure there's going to be some good ones if the service gets going. Uh, so what other advice do we have for the app.net people? Uh, Before you do, advice. we get a we we squeeze in one last sponsor, man. All right. You've been on a roll today, so I haven't known when to get it in there. Anytime. All right. We'll do help. It's helpspot.com. I've used these guys for years, and I spent, I used to spend back in my, uh, when I worked for a Rails hosting company, this was how we ran this business. I mean, this one piece of software 
was like, it was like how we ran everything. But you can do way more than just that kind of customer support. Uh, you know, it's it's like a lifeline, or it's, to quote one of your favorite movies, John, it allows you to be a beacon for those who uh, would seek support. But it, it's not just a basic help desk system. It's a lot more. It Pretty much, you can take this chaos of email interactions, which is how most people start out doing support for whatever they're doing support for. And it lets you turn it into structured help desk tickets. You can manage them. You track them. You provide customer self-service so that you make it possible so they don't even need to contact you. There's the whole, you know, the whole uh, concept of having questions answered in one place that they can get in, they can search. You can take what was a, a ticket and you can convert that into something useful that people can then search and find their answer on their own before they even have to ask you. But when they do have to ask you, when they do need to ask you a question, it's super easy because all of this is integrated into their portal. You can automate escalations and responses based on the kind of questions that people ask. Uh, there's a real-time integrated reporting you can see what's going on with your customer service. You can see where there's a problem. You can see how your help desk people, if you have people dedicated to this, how fast are they how fast are they getting answers to customers who ask? How long did a customer wait? And that's really useful. Oh man, this guy's been waiting a whole hour or a whole day. You know that prioritize them. You can learn more. Just go to helpspot.com slash five by five. All five by five listeners get a hundred bucks off when you use the offer code five by five. This is at helpspot.com slash 5 by 5 And there's different ways to do this. You can buy the software and host it yourself if you want. Or you can just use their hosted. It's great stuff. The folks who run this are, are, are really cool people I've known for years. And I uh, appreciate them helping out 5 by 5 by, by doing this sponsorship. Helpspot.com slash 5 by 5 Check them out. Advice for app.net or suggestions or th- things that are out there. One of them went by in the chat room recently which I think is still valid and probably kind of a shame that you can't do anything about is people like, all right, guys, change the name. App.net is dumb. It sounds dumb. I know you're probably excited that you got a three-letter domain name, even if it's .net. Yeah. Uh, but app.net, like Twitter, has a ring to it. it. It Even before it became associated with the thing, there was some association between Twittering and saying tiny little snarky comments. Like there's a connection there even before the branding attached. Now, of course, it's totally attached. And I've got a bird and it's got, you know, uh, app.net is never going to have that kind of mass market appeal. The thing about names is that if you are successful, your name works de facto, you know, by default. You did, you know, no matter what your crappy name is, if you manage to be successful despite your name, the name becomes a good name, becomes a name that works for you. Look at the Wii. Wii is a terrible, terrible name, but the product was successful, and therefore the name sticks and becomes associated with the product and gets good connotations. That could happen at app.net, but a good name would help too. But it's probably too late for that now. We're all talking about app.net, and if they change the name, it would be like a quickster situation where we're like, what? No, come on. You can't change the name at this point. It's probably already too late. Uh, funding things. People, you know, Marco's talked about how it's time to drop the price to get people on board, to build up. I, I agree that that would be a good thing. I just don't know what the financial situation is. Like, it's a slippery slope in that argument where you say, okay, you should really lower the price because that will get you more users. But if you follow that through, then you say, okay, we'll just make it free and you'll get even more users. And that's also true. But at a certain point, you're violating the spirit of the whole app.net endeavor, which is not to make it free and to get all your money from users. So you kind of have to figure out 
how little can we afford to pay? And that's when you get into this bargaining situation where, you, where you're like, uh, all right, so to cover our costs, we would really need like $25 per, from, from each user per year. So 50 is high. We can go down to 25, but like, guys, what do you think? What, do you, what if we just go down to $5 a year, like just now, just to get people on board? Like, and then, then you're willfully going into debt to get things done. And he said, we'll just, we'll just do it for now. We'll just do it for, like, for the first six months. We'll be $5 for every user, and then we'll bring it back up, and we'll get a sustainable business. I don't think you want to... It's very tempting to go down below your costs, but it's very difficult to bring that price back up. And the whole kind of point of the service is we hope that the money we're giving them is going to let them cover their costs and more and let them grow. And therefore, they'll never need to seek another way to get money. Whereas if they start selling it below that, what their cost is, or like in the hopes that if they get enough users, they'll start to cover their costs again, or any, any kind of price that's below what is sustainable, we start to worry, boy, they're not charging us enough to... The amount they're charging us is not sustainable. And now I'm afraid that you're going to need to find somewhere else to get money from. And then we're just back to the Twitter situation again. And what the hell was the whole point of this, right? So that is, I'm sure, is the conversation that's going on behind the scenes with those guys. Uh, another aspect of this is third-party client applications. In the simple model, users of the service pay $50 a year to use it. If you want to use a, a cool client application, maybe the client application is free. Maybe the person who develops the client application charges you money for it. Maybe they sell it through the Mac App Store, the iOS App Store. Maybe they sell it through their website. You know, whatever. Buy the software. Your relationship is with that software developer. Maybe they charge you for paid upgrades. Maybe, you know, it's straightforward. $50 to the net to use the service. Pay a developer to use the client application. One of the ideas that I had a, a while ago and uh, Dalton himself posted about on the blog which I wasn't aware of, but people quickly pointed me to, that, which basically complete overlap between these ideas is, how about this model, all right? How about I pay app.net some amount of money and then I use a bunch of different clients to access app.net and app.net gives some of the money that I gave it proportionally to the client applications that I use. So if I use one client half the time, another client half the time, it takes, say it takes $5 off of my $50 and divvies it up, 250 to this application, 250 to that application. Uh, now, I think Dalton's idea was that, therefore, client applications could be free and they would get all our mo their money from us. And I think that's a bad idea. What I would prefer is client applications continue to, can continue to sell to individual users, but they also get a little extra bonus money, uh, you know, some tiny part of the, the money that each person pays app.net to use the service. A little tiny piece of that money goes off to... Uh, the, the client applications you use. Maybe it goes out proportionally to the client applications you use. Maybe you just designate one client application as your favorite and every month, you know, a dollar from your monthly fee goes to that client application. Something like that to create an even more virtuous cycle for third-party developers because this is a virtuous cycle between the users of app.net and app.net because we're paying them money and they're providing us a service and we're, you know, they're motivated to make a service we like because we're the one who's giving them their money, right? Client uh, software applications uh, are motivated to make clients we like because then we'll give them the money for the client uh, but there's some upfront cost to building on top of this API and to overcome that hurdle they could you know say they they could redirect some portion of the money to that now the the fear I think is that once you start taking any money from subscribers and funneling through to third-party applications it necessarily makes the winning third-party application strategy to be our application is free we'll make all our money up in volume and then you get into a situation where it's a free application, and the application developer is motivated to please app.net, and app.net is, is motivated to please you. So you, it's still kind of aligned, but it's indirectly aligned. It's a much more direct relationship where I pay you for the application, and if I don't like your application, I don't buy the next version or whatever. Uh, 
or I try your application or look at the screenshots and I don't like it. That is a much more direct relationship than an indirect one. So I would not want to create a race to the bottom on app pricing. And if that type of funneling revenue through to the third party developers would cause that, I would say no. But I don't think it will cause that. I think, especially if it's just some piddling amount of money, I think it would be more like uh, a tiny little carrot held out there like look if you make a client application that's super awesomely popular you could become a millionaire because if we get a million users and you get a dollar a year from each one of them so that's a million dollars you didn't have before and hey still charge five bucks for your application uh i don't think it would be a winning strategy to say okay your application all our applications are free and we're going to make it up in volume because that just won't work and if people get fooled into that that would be bad but uh in the short term it's probably better for the simple relationship users pay for the service users pay for client applications and everyone has a direct relationship and all interests are yeah, everyone, everyone pays for everything. Yeah. Like, well, they pay for things that they want. Like, yeah. they'll, they'll, I'm sure they'll be free client. I mean, the, 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 if that, you pay for the service, you can use it through their website. Yeah. I'm assuming this alpha.app.net thing will continue to work. This is what uh, we want for TV. I mean, we pay, you know, let us, let us pay for what we want to use. Yeah, well, it's, it's the HBO model, kind of. HBO kind of. model is tied up in all sorts of packaging and bundling and deals and whatever. And that, that's... I've I said many pessimistic things about app that and I still still believe all of them like the reason HBO works is that it's because it's bundled into cable packages and it's you know, like that that's where they make all their money from if you had to pay for HBO individually through say the HBO to go application where you know you don't have to subscribe we talked about this before I don't think HBO would get enough money to make the awesome shows we like like if they had to make us pay the real price for HBO that it really costs for them to make these things you know HBO is not part of cable packages anymore if you want it you pay HBO directly X amount of dollars per month, and it appears magically on your TV through technology we're not going to describe. How much money would every HBO subscriber have to pay to make it so they have enough money to make Game of Thrones? I think it would be a way more than $11 a month. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the bind we're all in here. Like, the old funding model, we don't like, but the new funding model seems like it would cost way too much money. So App.net is going right to the new funding model. How much money does App.net have to charge each person to make a service like this? Their current answer is $50 a year, and maybe that's way too much for people. Maybe that's not, they're never going to do it with that. It's just too much. They're never going to get more than a couple thousand users, and it's going to be a boring service to use with a couple thousand users or whatever. Uh, that's, I'm, I'm afraid of that too. That seems like a very likely scenario that just, that you need to get more critical mass than they're ever going to get, and it's just not going to work because people don't want to pay that much money. Like, I'm already thinking when the next year comes up, am I going to pay $50 again for this? Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the good thing they have going for them is, I don't know what it is. It's not the sunk cost fallacy, but it's the, the thing that makes you want to uh, not look foolish for spending money. So people who, people who spent the $50 to fund app.net are highly motivated to try to use it. Otherwise, they're going to feel like they wasted their $50, like to save face or just to feel like they're getting their money's worth or whatever these things are. When the rational thing to do would be if you try to use AppTheNet and don't like it, you should stop using it. And rather than forcing yourself to try to use it and say, well, I did pay $50. But that that feeling that, oh, well, I did pay $50, I really want to get my money's worth, that totally exists. We are all subject to it. I'm subject to it. We're all doing it. That works in AppTheNet's favor. The people who put in the money, they're going to, they're going to, force themselves, like continue to use Twitter, but then also keep going to this app.net thing. Partly it's because we can rationalize it saying, well, I want this to work, right? And if I don't use it, it's not going to work. But partly it's because, hey, I paid $50. I'm going to try to extract $50 of value out of this thing, even if like actually using it seems like work. Right? Do, you, do you feel that? You've posted a few times on app.net. When you're using it, do you feel like I'm doing this because I'll 
feel foolish to have paid fifty dollars for this stupid thing when really all it is is just Twitter? Or, or do you? I, I don't know. How, how honest can you be with yourself about why it is that you're using App.net? I you no. Know, I mean, it goes back to my comment before, which is I feel like it's a different. I feel like it's a different audience. You know, I mean, in in the same way that I, I when we when you're on when you're on the incomparable instead of here. You're speaking. I'm sure there's an overlap. But there, it is a different audience. So I feel like I almost feel the opposite. I almost feel like I, I should be cross-posting more. And I hate cross-posting. And that devalues the service. But I feel like I should – I almost – I'm, I'm very tempted to ask the same questions or make the same comments. But I find that I, I kind of craft it like, well, these guys are mostly developers. And, and maybe I'll ask this thing over here. And I'll ask this other thing over here. And I don't like that. I don't like having to think about it so yeah, I much. I saw you, you tweeted like the, the building analyst was featured in the iTunes story. I did. I cross posted it. I did. But, but you did like a disclaimer. You're like, this is so important that I'm feeling the need to cross. Like you, you, you uh, excused yourself by saying, I know cross posting is crappy, but this <laughs> is such good news that I feel like I should post it to both places. So you're basically apologizing. Like, I'm sorry if you follow me exactly. on Twitter and you also follow me on app.net. You're about <laughs> to see the same information twice, but you put it right in the post. But, right? and, and app.net let me do that because they yeah, have, <laughs> <laughs> right, so I—that's where I did my apology. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's. This is going to be—it's uh, a dilemma to be a, a challenge for App.net, especially since like when Twitter crushed a dream of—I was still dreaming about a combined client because if you just make Twitterific show posts from both and like tag them in a certain way, that would be my ideal interface because I don't want to check two places. Like that's Twitter has come and made me stop doing lots of other things. Like we talked about how I stopped using RSS. I talked about that when I was on the, the talk show recently. Stop using RSS as much as I used to because Twitter has replaced it. But now I've got an additional thing. That's part of a lot of where, uh, I was about to say hot dogs, ladies. A lot of where Merlin's uh, anger comes from is like, do I want another freaking thing that I have to check? And nobody wants another thing they have to check. We want fewer things to check, not, not more. And Twitter was good because it like replaced many different things for us. But now there's a second thing and a bunch of my friends are going on it. i got to go on this thing, but it seems dumb. And I'd just be happy if we all just stayed on Twitter and... Maybe Merlin doesn't care as much about the third-party client stuff. Maybe he'd be like, oh, I care too, but not that much. I would just stomach it and let's just all deal with it and not make this new thing. I get that feeling a lot too, that I don't want another thing to check. I, I've been doing both <laughs> app.net and Twitter for you know a week or so now. Yeah, It's a hassle. Uh, and the, the initial excitement of, ooh, this new thing is kind of wearing off, and now I'm looking at these two different places. Oh, I got something else I got to check now. Yeah, the good thing is that the, the traffic on App.net has been way lower than Twitter, so I don't check it for like half a day when I go there. There's only three new posts from the people I follow, uh, mostly because they're all tweeting on... Uh, and you, uh, is that a good thing, though, or is that a bad thing? It means it's not hard for me to catch up, but it's bad, and the, the service is going. Now, the final thing that people mention in the chat room is that Apps.net's vision is much bigger than make a Twitter replacement. Their vision is more like make an, uh, you know a clearinghouse for feeds of data between applications with just arbitrary metadata because you can put your own sort of user or client or application specific metadata buried into these things and pass them around. It's almost like the, the payload is incidental to the, the metadata. And I think their, their dream is, that's why it's called app.net. Uh, their dream is to make a service through which network connected applications can use it as their plumbing, right? To implement all sorts of interesting applications. Uh, and sort of their back door in is like, well, the first application we're going to build is going to look just like Twitter, only cooler and demonstrating the power of our platform. And that kind of makes sense, but that's also kind of a different business because then if that was your business, wouldn't you be charging 
uh, third-party developers to use your back end. Kind of like imagine if iCloud was made by a separate company. Like, hey, you want to make a uh, Mac application? Well, we're going to provide a service for you. It will store all your preferences and sync all your data, and you just pay us some percentage. I mean, the service is like that, like Open Faint. I don't know if they charge, but the, uh, the, lots of gaming services where like, we'll start, store your high scores, and we'll do matchmaking services for you and stuff like that, and all you have to do is pay us X dollars a month or X dollars per uh a copy of your application that you sell or X dollars per registered user or whatever. That's a different business model of being like the cloud services plumbing type thing. Uh, but app.net, the infrastructure seems like it's there to do something like that, but they're asking for money from the users. And I guess there's probably a tension between those two things. Maybe that's their out. Like if this thing, if we never get the critical mass to be like a, a, a Twitter replacement or to do the t- to to get all the people from Twitter to come over here, and it never happens. People get tired of going to places, and they all leave. We still might have a viable service selling cloud services to people who want to make third-party applications that look nothing like Twitter clients, but nevertheless use our backend. Uh, I'm not. I would like to hear more articulation from the app.net people about that vision. Right now, so far, the vision seems to be uh, do kind of like what Twitter's doing, but not as evil with the potential to do this other stuff. But I don't, I don't quite see how they combine yet. Maybe, maybe I've just, I'm missing from the forest, the tree. So I'm going to be keeping my eye on that. And hopefully the app.net people will have more to say on that topic. I think we're, we've reached the end here though. I I can't believe I thought they were going to try to get the mountain lion stuff, but (laughs) we will continue, we will continue to push it out. All right. People get for announcing things on Thursdays. That's right. Who does that? That's just rude. Yeah. It's good for me sometimes, I guess. Actually, I didn't. It's very lucky for you. People on Twitter were calling for you to to speak about what it is that you chose to speak about. Yeah, and I kept saying, "No, I'm, I'm going to do Mountain Line." That's what I replied to all those people. Now, how about this? If uh, something else amazing happens next week that once again forces your hand and makes it so that you can't talk about Mountain Line, then we will do a bonus. If you have time, we'll do a weekend bonus episode, just because we don't want to. We don't want to keep prolonging it. Maybe we should plan to do that anyway. Here, here I am scheduling your time, but uh, I just don't, you know, I feel bad because people are there. We've gotten some feedback, emails and, and tweets and things of people saying, please, please continue the mountain lion discussion. Yeah, now rest assured it will continue. The good thing, I think, is that mountain lion's not going anywhere. And if if it's like four weeks old or five weeks old, it's not quite the same. It would be very different talking about the Twitter API announcement the day after it happened versus talking about it a week later. But I think next week we're pretty assured that I'm going to do more mountain lion stuff. Because I'm, I'm highly motivated to do that, and I think it will happen. And if, and definitely, if it gets pushed off, we will make other arrangements. Yeah, okay. But I don't, I don't think it will. I can't. What could possibly happen, he says, a week <laughs> from, <laughs> from the events happening as Apple buys TiVo and we have to scrub the whole show? Yeah. All, All right. right, then. Well, thank you for another good show, uh, John Syracuse. You can follow, now I have more places to send people to. You can follow John on Twitter at twitter.com slash Syracusa, which is spelled S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. He is, uh, can be found in the same place on app.net, which is, as of today, alpha. Alpha.app.net slash Syracusa. And I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter and just Dan on app.net or app.net <laughs> or whatever Say it, it is. Your name on Wii U. Yeah, we can. Uh, you can go to five by five TV slash hypercritical slash eighty one. That's where all the show notes and links are. And of course, there is an entire catalog of shows that we would love for you to listen to. And if you enjoy the shows, please consider rating them on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. Why isn't hyper hypercritical a featured show? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it will be if you 
rated highly enough. So we appreciate that. And uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back and we'll see you again next week. Thank you.